Hi, I'm Anya Katz, and you're listening to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. I started this podcast because I was tired of being stereotyped as lazy, triggered, and entitled. I wanted to give voice to a different kind of millennial and invite us to write a new story. One of a generation willing to challenge the status quo, embrace nuance and paradox, and reject PC culture. This podcast isn't about finding answers. It's about asking the right questions. How can we reinvent ourselves and the narratives we've been expected to inherit? How can we take ownership over the ways we participate in our own suffering? How can we move beyond victimization and into empowerment? How can we fix ourselves to fix the world? It's time for new dreams, new stories, and new futures. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me for another episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. It is a uh, hazy day here in Crestone, Colorado. Don't get many of those here. It's uh, pretty nice, actually, to have sun. I think it's 100% sunny, like no clouds in the sky, 320 days a year here. So it's nice. It makes a big difference winter-wise. I grew up in the Northeast, and uh, that was a lot of gray. And I feel like maybe what I disliked about it was the gray overcast, not the cold and the snow. We'll see. This is my first time spending a winter in somewhere, yeah, in somewhere other than the Northeast, or I guess Europe, but anyway. Today's episode is a very special one, one that I'm very, very excited to bring you. Um, it is featuring Lena Dune, which is a pen name. She has basically an anonymous presence online. She's a uh, collared submissive in a 24-7 DS relationship. We define all of these terms on the podcast. Um but yeah, I, uh, I've been following her for a while. I send her page on Instagram, which is at ask a sub to a lot of people. Uh, she talks very openly about PDSM and sexual submissiveness in a way that I think most people cannot because they have, you know, public personas and she had a brilliant idea to share about all of this sort of more taboo information openly and clearly, and therefore she created um, an anonymous online persona. Uh, and I've basically been stalking her, trying to get her on my podcast. Um, I wasn't I wasn't even sure if she did podcasts because of the anon- anonymity, uh, but then heard her on Dan Savage's podcast and saw she was on a couple others. So yeah, basically stalked her until she agreed to come on my show. Um, and I'm really glad she did uh, as cool as she is online, she's even cooler, um, in real life, in real, like, Zoom computer life. Um, so that was a really, uh, special privilege to get to actually talk to her, um, with our voices and our faces. Before I bring you that conversation, though, I wanted to talk a little bit about women. (laughs) And it's weird that we're in a time in the world right now, or maybe not weird, just interesting, that we're in a time right now where saying the word woman is almost controversial. It's like I have to check myself on six different fronts to 
make sure I'm clear about what I mean when I say woman, if I'm referring to genitalia, if I'm referring to bodies outside of genitalia, if I'm referring to gender identity, if I'm referring to femininity as in the energy, if I'm referring to femme as in on the femme side of a non-binary gender spectrum. Um, it's, it's, it's both, like I said, understandable for the time period that we're in, but a little odd for me, to be honest. And something where I feel like in so many ways in our culture and society right now, we're at a sort of turning point or like a fork in the road. And I recognize that in order to make changes in the world or in one's personal life, you need to sort of step into like the murky water for a while and be a little bit confused and be a little bit on edge or you know when you say something is definitive of something and then you work to redefine that obviously there's going to be a period in between you know it's not that different from when you enter into a dark night of the soul for example and in order to reconstruct yourself you have to deconstruct yourself and there's that period as my friend Kevin uh, says that you have to be in like an open source state and that sort of state is vulnerable and changing and um, you could it can go in any which direction after that so I think I'm the type of person that um, I'm always I always feel like I want to be two, two or three steps ahead of a thing you know so I think when the Me Too movement came out and everyone was sort of talking about their experiences with sexual abuse, sexual harassment, to me, it was like, yeah, okay, but but what do we do next? How do we move forward? You know, what is the pathway toward peace and understanding amongst the sexes or the genders or whatever word you want to use to define it? And I realized that on one hand, that can be avoidant of the process of reconstruction, you know, like, when I got divorced and decided I was going to live a different life, if I was like, I don't want to actually deal with this dark night of the soul period, which I obviously felt a lot, I just want to get to the next step, that I could be avoiding the important sort of messy, murky work of the reconstruction of the transformation. But also, I think thinking ahead doesn't necessarily mean you avoid the process. Maybe it just means that you're constructing the process in a way that's leading you to wherever you'd like to be. So it's sort of like a goal in a way, you know, like I still have to be here. I still have to put in the work. I still have to think about things and grieve things and uh, transform in uncomfortable ways. But at least I have an idea of what it, where I'm going, at least what it feels like, right? Even if it's just in energy, like where do we want to go as a society as far as quote unquote gender relations or relations among the sexes? I think we could all probably say that we want peace and equality, right? So how can we construct the process in getting there toward that goal? But I don't think we do that a lot. I think we get a little bit distracted about how we feel in the transformative period that we don't really know where we're going. And maybe that's just because we don't know where we're going. Um, or we don't know where we should be going, or we're too distracted by the process to even think that far ahead. But it concerns me as far as these movements go, these social justice movements, especially whether we're talking about, you know, the uh, trans rights or gay rights or women's rights or um, rights for 
black people or Native American people, right? Like we're in a process right now. I think in all of these movements, I know that they've all had their own trajectories, their own periods of time, their own sort of like historical moments. Um, They're unique and individual for sure. But I think there's a similarity right now, at least among young people within all of these movements where we're at this like, fuck it, period. The like, I've had enough. I'm really angry. This isn't okay. And I think it's a lot of noise and a lot of mm, not misguided, but misplaced emotion in many ways. You know, so while we may be angry for the way that we've been mistreated, I think if anyone really sat down and had a conversation about it, I don't think anyone wants to end up in a place of anger. I don't think anyone wants to end up in a place of compensatory injustice. You know, let me, equality to me, like the goal of the Me Too movement, you know, I think, I don't think anyone in their right mind would say that the goal there is to treat men as poorly as women were treated and just flip the coin, right? Maybe that is what they want. I feel like the whole future is female thing or believe women thing is, is very lacking in nuanced. And, um, I guess I don't know. I I don't know whether the people that are, uh, speaking within that rhetoric right now, if that's where they'll, they want to end up, or if they're acknowledging that this is just a period of time in which we're like angry and we need to reassess and we reorganize in order to achieve equality. But I do get worried sometimes that there is a lot of rejection, a lot of hatred, a lot of animosity, a lot of running away from instead of um, identifying, metabolizing, and then transforming or redefining on a theme instead of running away from something entirely. And to be more specific, I was uh, reading a fucking amazing article by Andrew Sullivan, who I love. I think it's I always find it amusing how much I think my worldview aligns with that of the gay male population. Um, I'm sure part of that has to do with being raised by a gay man. Um, But also, I just feel like the ways in which they view the world and the ways in which they live their lives just makes sense. You know, I think after so many years and decades of being stripped of the sort of heteronormative options like they can't get married they can't they can't live the normal heteronormative life that us heterosexual people had access to and so they had to redefine things right like okay well if we can't do that then what are we going to do instead and what feels authentic right like how are we going to support each other how are we going to live in community how are we going to construct relationships outside of the definitions and the structure of this very heteronormative world and although that was obviously and still is in many ways painful and frustrating it is interesting to see what you know, minority groups do in terms of their own communal, relational, sexual organization when they simply cannot just adapt what the culture and the society is feeding to us. I think that creates a much more authentic and aligned life and worldview. Um, So anyway, that I think is my reason why I feel so aligned with the gay male population. Obviously, that's like a huge stereotype to say that I agree with all of them. But um, so many times I feel myself like cheering 
uh, to whatever I hear gay men talking about. Um, Dan Savage is one of them. Obviously, my dad, Andrew Sullivan. I just fucking love the way that they look at the world. Anyway, uh, Andrew Sullivan wrote an article. It's on Substack, so you have to pay for it uh, in order to read it. But I think it's highly worth it. I feel like it's the one of the best things I've read all year. Um, but uh, the, the title is Where Have All the Lesbians Gone? And the subtitle is that they're coming out as non-binary or as men. And it was a really interesting piece, uh, basically broad strokes, um, talking about how there are way fewer people that identify as lesbian now. And that's reflected not just in, I think Andrew put out a, like a question or a survey to a lot of his readers to sort of ask them about this directly. There are um, way fewer lesbian bars. And I've noticed this in my life too. I'm friends with a couple people who are lesbians who are also sort of thinking about their own labeling, their own identity. And of course, this is multifaceted. I feel like probably... You know, I, for example, um, I've talked about this with Erin, uh, my friend Erin on our podcast, Horror Report, quite a bit in regard to sexual orientation. Um, and it's very complex and very nuanced and very personal. For example, Erin and I have both had sex with women. We have both are attracted to women. She's always called herself bisexual. I've never identified with that term. I always called myself heterosexual who a straight woman who likes women um so i think that's a sort of perfect example of how nuanced this is right and how socially constructed these terms are so i wonder if part of it is just that like women being attracted to women is becoming more mainstream um and so there isn't this need to necessarily identify as lesbian it's just like uh, i'm a woman and i'm attracted to people but i also think that those uh, that population of lesbians has also definitely moved more toward identifying as queer and non-binary or saying that they're trans and not women at all. Um, and that's sort of where that's the the context in which Andrew is writing the article from. But it brought up several interesting points that are in this day and age in the PC millennial world, um, very controversial and uh, politically incorrect. So of course they're my favorite things to read and share about. Um, but I'm going to read you a few paragraphs from this article because I feel like Andrew Sullivan can talk about this a lot more eloquently than I can. And I think these few paragraphs really summarize my thoughts about this and why I'm a little bit uncomfortable with some of the sort of rejecting, um, anger-infused rhetoric toward womanhood um, and femininity and femaleness. Uh, so anyway, he says, while there's some overlap between transgender and non-binary identities, they're not the same thing. And for some trans people, particularly older ones, the notion of non-binary directly conflicts with what it means to be trans. And this makes sense. If your deepest desire is to live as and be seen as the opposite sex, why would you want to dismantle the binary concept of sex? According to the National Center for Transgender Equality, most trans people identify as either male or female, period. That's the whole point of transitioning. Intersex, I should note, is a separate category as well and should not be conflated with either transgender or non-binary. For some NBs, what the non-binary NB call themselves. Coming out is often more superficial than surgical. 
It's an update posted to friends and family on social media, maybe one that says, I'm non-binary and my pronouns are they, them. This tends to generate a lot of likes. Non-binary people say that the identification liberates them from the prison of gender, but for others, it doesn't dismantle gender roles and stereotypes. It just reinforces them. It legitimizes the idea that there's an intractable gender binary in the first place. Instead of saying, I'm a woman and I reject gender roles, NB ideology says, in effect, I reject gender roles and therefore I'm not a woman. Jocelyn McDonald, the editor-in-chief of the lesbian site After Ellen, has seen the NB ideology pushed by well-intentioned people, and she worries about the unintended consequences. When we say that femininity is equivalent to womanhood, we leave no space for women, gay or straight, to be gender non-conforming, she told me. Butch lesbians especially have fought for the right to claim space as women, and now women are running from that instead of boldly stepping into it. It's another way of saying, I'm not like other girls, and it's demeaning to other women. I honestly could not agree more with any of this. Um, And this is coming from someone, obviously, I'm not trans, but I have studied gender and sexuality for quite some time, both in school and out of school. My father is gay. I know a lot of trans people. I've known trans people since I was a child. True story. I felt Laverne Cox's tit after she got it. My father's partner growing up was close friends with her. um, So I spent a lot of time with her. So trans people in general, this has been an integral as normal experience in my life, in my childhood growing up, really as anything else. Um, And it made sense to me. It always has. You know, I... I've not had this experience, but I totally think it's a legitimate experience that people are born and think I'm in the wrong fucking body. I'm not a man. I'm not a woman. And I want to transition. That made sense to me. I have more trouble with the non-binary space. And I worry about it most in the ways that it both defines and constructs, again, womanhood, femininity, femaleness, whatever, um, In my mind, both in my opinions and both in what I've read and studied, there are a couple things going on here. There's physical sex, what your genitalia is, and the, you know, hormonal um, expression of that sex outside of genitalia, so tits and chest hair and whatever else. And then there's gender. Gender is a social construction. If you study gender and sexuality cross-culturally, which I have, there are no, there is no one way to be a woman or to be a man. There's no one way to be straight. There's no one way to be gay. One of my favorite examples is there's a lot of countries where men fuck men, but the men who are considered gay are only the men who are receiving of the cock, not the ones who are giving it, right? So the, the bottoms are gay, the tops are not gay. Um, And this is just one of many, many, many examples of how our ideas of what womanhood is, our ideas of what homosexuality is, they're constructed. You know, there's a whole book called The Invention of Homosexuality um, that talks about how, for example, Oscar Wilde fucked men, but he existed in a time prior to the word homosexuality even existing. So if we call Oscar Wilde a homosexual, that's not really accurate because Just because he fucked men doesn't mean that he had any sort of identity around fucking men. 
he wasn't a homosexual. He was a guy that fucked men. That's the fact. Homosexual is what we've created, the identity that we've constructed. This is the same for woman or man. I know that our culture has constructed huge, dense, um, limiting ideas about what it means to be a woman or a man, but we have constructed it. And it's my opinion that if something can be constructed, it can be deconstructed. So as someone who's thought about this a long time, I have gone through so many different iterations of my own identity as a woman. I think growing up, I was a huge tomboy, and I think I felt very pressured to adhere to more feminine ways of dressing and acting. I always hung out with guys well into my 20s. I didn't have close female friends. I really did not identify with the quote-unquote female woman population. And the reasons for that were mostly because I felt like the way I thought about specifically sex was and relationships was very different than how most women wanted to. I was very open about it. I was very curious about it. I wasn't thinking that jealousy was like a sign of strength or coolness. I wasn't proprietary over my relationships. I wasn't weirded out by things. I liked shooting arrows and um, I liked running around in the woods. I liked building things. I, I never felt super quote unquote female. There's a hilarious um, childhood movie of me, in fact, where my, <laughs> my parents gave me like a ballerina outfit uh, for my birthday. And I literally started screaming like, I don't like it. I don't like it. Um, there's even a better childhood movie of me when I'm like an infant, uh, who barely knows what a penis and vagina is, but I'm like convincing my dad or trying to convince my dad that I have a penis and not a vagina. And there I am like a little vagina laden, uh, infant running around. Like clearly I have a vagina, but I'm just like, no, I have a penis. Like I'm not going to accept that. I probably had no idea what I was talking about, but it is interesting. Um, and then up until I feel like I feel like eventually I started to like perform femininity in a way. So like, okay, I, you know, I'm a 20 something year old woman in the world. This is how I'm supposed to act. This is what I'm supposed to do. And then when I got divorced and I went through this very dark period in my life, I really rejected um, stereotypical womanhood, femininity, etc. I started buying baggy clothes. I grew out my armpit hair. I wasn't shaving at all. Um, I was picking up more hobbies. I wanted to learn how to hunt. I was like really trying to embrace um, my own masculine identity because it always had felt so strong. And I was like, oh, for the first time, I don't really give a shit what anybody thinks. So I'm going to do that more. And then I had a really interesting conversation with my therapist where we started talking about my relationship to my mother and my relationship to other women. So like, how is my relationship toward other women defined by re my relationship with my mother? And then how is all of that being expressed through my own identification with or embodiment of or acceptance of my own womanhood? And that was a pretty fucking intense conversation because it became very clear to me that I was rejecting a construction <laughs> again. I don't think I grew up with a very healthy understanding of or example of what it meant to be a woman. And I think I was distrusting of women in general. And I was taking that all out 
on my own body and on my own identity. So I don't trust women. I don't understand women. I don't like women. I'm not going to be a woman. And I thought that was empowering. And it, and it did feel empowering for a time. And, and there are still many ways in which I'm, I always will be, I am and always will be very much identified with my own inner masculine. But I realized that that doesn't have to come at the expense of being identified with and empowered by my own femininity. And I think I was able to wrap my head around all of this stuff um, in a way that felt a lot more clear and comfortable once I truly stripped male, female, and bodies away from energy um, and developed a spiritual practice, which I think was very informing to me around just archetypally sort of more masculine and feminine energies. Or even I had a um, great, amazing astrologer and uh, therapist on my podcast, Jason Hawley, which even took those um, archetypes farther to, to describe them as night and day psychology. So night being femininity and day being masculinity, because these words are so heated right now and um, so, you know, just imbued with political social shit that really to strip away all of that stuff and think about them purely energetically. First of all, it made it very clear to me that I didn't need to reject one to be the other and that there was not only a beauty and a sacredness around both, but also a necessity. It felt imperative to me that I was embodying of both of those energies. And because I was able to strip them down so far, the masculine and the feminine ended up feeling like this totally pure, sacred, energetic space that I could redefine, that I could put meaning onto, project meaning onto in any way that I felt safe with and that felt authentic to me. And that shift was liberating and freeing in so many different ways. And my own reclaiming of my own femininity, of my own womanhood, was so beautiful and um, something that I hope we can all do. And, and of course, because we're, we're talking about this in terms of energy now, masculine and feminine, these, the, both of these exist in all of us. They exist in nature. Um, I could do a whole episode just describing how these archetypes are both different but work together and are necessary. They, they both have to work together. So it's like I did some surgery, right? Like I opened something up super deeply, got to the very root of the thing, which was energy, and then could work backwards from there, right? So if I could see femininity for what it was, not what it was, not what someone told me it was supposed to be, not the way my mother embodied it, not the way my quote unquote friends, you know, growing up embodied it, I could see it for what it was, for the beauty, for the necessity of what it was, and then I could build it out from there. So if I'm accepting of an understanding of femininity, how might I be more accepting of my own womanhood, my own actually bodily existence as a woman in this world. Um, 
And I think this exploration, which interestingly, I feel like is an exploration that has played out live on this podcast. If you go back and listen to the conversations that I was having, the solo episodes that I was doing two years ago or so, um, this process very much unfolded in real time in front of all of you. But it is fascinating to see how through that process, it was not only inspiring and grounding to redefine womanhood, right? To say that like, I can be a woman, but I can like to hunt and I can be a woman and I can be strong. I can be a woman and I can have this podcast where I'm the host and I can say things that maybe other people were afraid to say. So I was able to be a woman and be those things, but also I was able to remind myself about what the beauty of femininity and womanhood was. And it freaks me out a little bit that where we are as a society right now is so rejecting of womanhood. We're so afraid of it. And I get that. I've talked about this like ad nauseum. It's again, something that you'll hear in my conversation with Lena in a bit. I get why quote unquote female power, feminine power. I get why we're afraid of embodying that. And I understand why we don't even necessarily know what it is. We live in a patriarchal capitalist society where the only forms of valuable power are masculine expressions of power, dominance, ownership, authority, colonialism, right? All of these, like, I'm going to take and own, um, those are all masculine in nature. And so women um, have had to take those qualities on in order to exist in the world in a way where they could succeed in a way where they could make money in a way where they could be taken seriously to some extent. Uh, there was no opportunities to express feminine, female, woman, whatever the fuck you want to call it, power and be valuable to society because we've removed the extent to which those things are necessary. So what are some examples of feminine, female, woman power? Um, to me, I think they can all be umbrellaed, umbrellaed under vulnerability, um, relinquishing control, right? How many women do we know in the world who are so fucking miserable and so distracted by control? I, mean, I use the word neurotic a lot because I feel like whether or not that's an accurate description of this or not, the way that I view this quality among women, it's like a, a busyness, a sort of hysterical insanity around control. And I don't think it's healthy. And I, I think not that being in control of things is bad. It's a beautiful masculine expression. But I think for women to be in control all of the time is devastating and um, prevents them from living within and identifying as like a healthy, comprehensive woman. Because to me, some beautiful feminine qualities include relinquishing control, trusting, right? Like these soft sort of quiet um, traits. And I say this to a lot of people. I've had this conversation with a lot of people on the podcast. And so many times I say this like, hey, you know, don't you also feel like we've lost track of what feminine power is? And don't you think that vulnerability and trust and all those things are very powerful? And most of them will respond to me by saying, yes, but femininity is also rage. And to me, it's like, no, no, a healthy woman is encompassing of their masculine expression of rage. 
But I don't think we need to define femininity by saying that a healthy woman is embodying of also masculine traits. Like, I don't think rage is feminine. I think rage is a healthy emotion for women and men to be in touch with. And of course, we can't have one or the other, right? I'm not saying that healthy women aren't don't have anger and don't have rage. I don't actually think that women, femininity, whatever, can express itself in a healthy way without embodying the masculine side, right? So like we can't be submissive or vulnerable or relinquishing of control if we have no backbone and we have no ability to set boundaries, right? Obviously these things go hand in hand, but I just take issue with this inability that we have to see femininity for what it is and see it for what it its value is and what its power is. And I get it. How do we be and how do we embody vulnerability, trust, relinquishing control in a world that takes advantage of that and abuses that? Because that's where we're at and that's where we've been for a long time. That's how we got here. But I don't see how we get out of that without, as best we can, finding safe spaces to reconnect with that femininity. And that, that's both for women and for men. But especially for those who identify as women, because I think we are carrying that torch in a way. And to me, of course, lesbians are women, you know, <laughs> like tomboys are women. Like it, all of these things can occur within a female body. Now, if you don't feel identified with that body, if you feel like you want to cut your tits off or put tits on you, all of that, that's totally fine. But I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by rejecting gender roles that we've constructed instead of seeing them for the constructions that they are and reinventing them and redefining them. To me, rejecting these things takes away our own agency to change. Like there's no God up in the sky that said, this is what a woman is. And this is what a man is. He just said like, here's a vagina and a penis. You deal with it. And yes, the ways that we've dealt with it, the ways that it's interacted with the world has been harmful and unhealthy and unequal, but we can't reject it. And this also applies for men and masculinity as well. You know, I think I've talked a lot about the issues that I see with men feeling as if all of their masculine identity, all of their masculine expression is unhealthy and they need to embody female qualities. They need to be more emotional. They need to be more sensitive. All of that's true, but not at the rejection of and the alienation of healthy masculinity. Just because we've embodied a shadow side of both, let's say, masculinity and femininity doesn't mean there isn't a healthy side. There is a healthy side. And I think if we're not acknowledging of that and reconstructive of those terms, I think we're going backwards. And I'm not making the argument that being non-binary is illegitimate. I'm definitely not making the, the argument that being trans is illegitimate. I don't really give a shit what people do or how they define themselves. That's totally fine. I just want to make sure we go through all of these steps before we reject a thing. Like how much of this is constructed in the society? How much of this is constructed in my own psyche because of my own relationship with men or women? And then make the decision. I just fear the total rejection of the beauty of womanhood. 
And I feel even stronger about that now, the past couple years in putting this podcast together and sort of extracting myself from my previous life, which did not feel good or authentic, where I didn't have female friends like the female friends that I have now. And I'm so grateful, especially for those women in my life. And I'm so grateful that many of them have chosen to take this road of redefining, of reconstituting their own inner womanhood or their own inner femininity, to broaden the definition of what that means, to reject the unhealthy, jealous, competitive nonsense side of womanhood and embrace the vulnerable, inclusive, calm, quiet, emotional, sensitive side. And it's so clear to me now. I mean, I I definitely sometimes spend time, I think, with women who haven't necessarily gone through this process and are still identifying as women as far as what the culture has decided women should be. And it feels so icky and so toxic. And it's such a (laughs) severe difference from my friends that are not like that now. And I have a great deal of sadness um, for the fact that women are so stuck in this sort of unhealthy shadow side of womanhood, and also that we've reached the point where we think that's what womanhood is, that's what femininity is, and it's just not. And I think if we look at it and say, like, nah, uh, like, this is what the culture has decided is a woman, I don't identify with that, I'm not a woman. To me, there's like a deep sadness and grief in that. And I hope that women are given more tools and more examples of other types of women. And again, the same could be said for men, where we can explore femininity in ways that feel safe and aligned and authentic, and we can support each other in that. And this really gets into this conversation. I know in my the last episode I did, the solo episode, I talked a lot about um the multivalence of things, of archetypes, of themes, the importance of embracing nuance. And I use the vow as an example, um, which I wish I had watched prior to having this conversation with Lena because it would have been really interesting. I'll just have to have her back on the show to talk about the vow because basically the vow takes a lot of these concepts that Lena is talking about, um, master-slave or power, dominance and submission, ownership, all this stuff, and expresses it in a severely unhealthy, unhealthy, toxic way that I think reinforces unhealthy masculinity and femininity. But what Lena does is that she's using a lot of those same terms, right? The same language, a similar context, but it's being expressed in a way that's adding to and redefining what it means to be a healthy man or a woman, or what it means to embody a healthy expression of masculinity and femininity. And I fear that this total rejection of womanness, femaleness, femininity is going to land us in a place where unless we say, I'm not a woman, we people think we're unhealthy, people think we are sacrificing our own values, people think we're being taken advantage of. These things are not true. And I, I hope that especially the women that listen to this podcast, I know there are very few spaces. Um, I think actually BDSM is one of the spaces where this is possible. Of course, there are unhealthy BDSM relationships for sure. Um, 
But I hope that women are able to cultivate more and more environments and spaces in which women can redefine femininity and their own womanhood in a healthy and honest way. Because I just don't think it's possible. Like, I don't think we have as much control as we think we do. I do think energetically, femininity and masculinity is a thing. And my guess, my best guess, is that all of this stuff going on right now, all of these themes around gender, around power, around gurus, around narcissists, all it's doing is like trying to bring this stuff, which has been living under the surface, above ground. And I think bringing it above ground has been really freaky for us, um, either because we were totally unaware of what was going on or because we just felt it was so painful and so challenging to navigate that we just rather it be underground and keep acting stupidly and in a way that was self-harming. But I think all of this stuff is coming above ground, not for outright rejection, but for redefinition. And of course, there are many paths to where we're going. But because I personally feel very strongly that masculinity and femininity are real. This is like yin and yang, right? Like everyone knows that symbol. <laughs> they are white and black, and there is a white circle in the black space and a black circle in the white space. This is femininity, masculinity is president, is president. It is president. Let's make femininity and masculinity president. Um, it is present in like every ancient text and society and religion. It's all over the place. It's all around. And I don't think we're going to be able to escape that. So why don't we just accept that masculinity is different from femininity, that all humans and all things contain both energies, and it is up to us to decide what that looks like. We don't need to reject anything. If we constructed it, we can deconstruct it. We can redefine it. That's empowering. That gives us agency, and I really think we need more of that in the world. It's why I feel so strongly about staying in this fucked up country. You know, everyone always sort of asks me, like, why don't you leave the country, or why don't you create this community somewhere else? And I feel the reason is not because I have some kind of love affair with America, or let's say any other country I w could have been born in, but because I think we have a lot more choice and a lot more agency and a lot more options than we think we do. And so if I can create a reciprocal, mutually supportive community of people who feel comfortable being themselves in whatever that is, regardless of whatever words you or labels you use to define yourself, if I can create a world that is healthy in a larger context that tells us we can't create that world, then I feel like that's a fucking middle finger to the man. And that's what I care about. I don't want to escape to another country to create some sort of utopia. I fully am convinced that I can create that utopia wherever, including in America, which has told me and everyone else that we have to live in the way that they want us to working a nine-to-five job, falling into traditional gender roles, working our asses off, being a slave to something that is never going to help us or benefit us in any way. I know that it's very hard structurally to crawl out of that. I know that I'm in a privileged position because I can do that. 
But if I don't do it, if I don't use that privilege to create that space and allow other people's people to join me, I don't know. I just feel like escaping is cowardly, whether it's escaping this country, whether it's escaping my own womanhood. I don't want to do that. I want to plant my feet here and say, hey, we have way more choices. We are living in cages with the door wide open. And the experience in and of itself of the redefinition of the saying, fuck you, is important. These things don't control us. We control them. We may have been hurt, taken advantage of, abused, and for sure, that manifests in sadness and grief. And yeah, we were victims of that situation. But in general, in our lives, we're not victims. We have the agency and the power to crawl out of that. I feel like every single person I've had on my podcast has a story to tell in that respect. My life has been that. I think so many people who listen to this podcast have experienced that or hope to experience that in their own lives. So I hope hearing this conversation with Lena is a very acute example of that. This is an extremely brave and courageous woman who has decided not only to embrace these sort of more taboo, politically incorrect qualities and aspects to her own life, but has taken them online to the masses to teach other people about them too. That's fucking cool and way cooler than, you know, people who watch The Vow and are like, ah, power, like bad. We need to punish men and everything should be ruled by women. That's way too simple and unsustainable and um, I hope not the direction that we're going. All right, that was a long ass rant. I was hoping maybe that I could save that for an episode of Horror Rapport or something, but it was super top of mind right now and uh, I needed to get it out. So if you would like to support this podcast and help me keep it ad free, honestly, I'm never going to have ads. I'd just be broke <laughs> prior to agreeing to doing ads on the podcast. Um, but if you'd like to help support this podcast financially and get access to lots of perks, um, we have a book club, we have exclusive WhatsApp group chats of about 30 people, so you can communicate with other listeners of the podcast. Um, we have patron-led workshops and seminars. Uh, so the first one that's going to be happening is December 10th. It's a workshop on season seasonal foraging um, hosted by one of my patrons, Isabel. Very glad um, and honored that she is going to take the torch with those workshops. Um, so she's going to teach us all via Zoom, seasonal foraging. That's available as a patron, and then we're going to have others as well. Um, astrology, uh, outdoor skills, et cetera, et cetera. And those are all led by you guys. They're free for patrons. Um, they're donation only, basically. So if the patrons have some extra money, they can send that directly to the individual teaching the course. None of that money goes to me. I want to empower all of you. Um, so this is a great space to practice your own skills in teaching whatever your expertise is to other people who want to learn it. Uh, what else is there? Just got stickers. I'm about to add stickers to the Patreon. Um, I feel like there's so many things I'm missing. Book clubs, WhatsApp groups, stickers, playlists, t-shirts, 
a lot of stuff and I will likely be adding more stuff as we go on. So if you have a few extra dollars to spare per month and you want to support the podcast and develop some closer relationships with other listeners, patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. If you don't have any extra money to spend or all of that stuff is not your thing, totally get it. Another great way you can support the show for free is to go into iTunes, hit subscribe, scroll all the way down, uh, hit stars to rate the podcast and leave a review. The review can be a word, a sentence, two paragraphs, it doesn't really matter. Um, But all of that, the the subscribing, the rating and the reviewing helps the podcast show up more in search results and also just makes the podcast look more legitimate. There are like a hundred times more people that listen to this podcast um, that have, who then have reviewed it or rated it. Um, So if we could get a little bit more of you uh, to do that, so it reflects more accurately upon how popular the podcast is and how many people listen to it and find it valuable, um, that helps in many ways, but specifically when I reach out to famous people or people that don't have a lot of time on their hands to come on the show, the first thing they're going to go do is go into iTunes to see if that podcast is worth doing. So um, they're not going to believe me necessarily about how many people listen. They're just going to look at how many people have rated and reviewed it. So if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, if you find it valuable, that would be very, very helpful. Um, and of course, just keep listening, keep sharing episodes with your friends, posting about it on social media. All of those things help. I am so grateful for this community more so every day and uh, cannot wait to bring you future conversations. So enjoy the show. I am going to play you in today with a song called Frequency by Sylvan Esso. The way that she describes this frequency in the song is very much how I feel about my female friends. It's very much how I feel about Lena Dune, all the other fucking powerful badass women who have been on the show or in my life. You know who you are. I fucking love you. I want to be like you. I admire you. And I cannot wait to see all of the amazing things that we do in the world, both individually and collectively. Enjoy this song. Enjoy this conversation. I'll catch you all on the other side. Her voice 
coming through my dial. She's the one, I swear to God, a frequency. She's got a frequency, and I want it all over me. But away is all I got. Oh, I never need to touch. Just wait. I can hear you great. Wonderful. <laughs> so I am here with Lena Dune. Um, what is that, by the way? Like, a pe- is it a pen name if it's not necessarily writing? I'm, I'm curious. It, what is, ha- it is a pen name. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's actually um, to, a reference to two different Anais Nin stories Absolutely. that I enjoy. Um, mm-hmm. The Lena story is actually, like, extremely problematic from what I remember. But um, D- Dune refers to a story called Woman on the Dune that's, like, about... Um, basically just a woman getting really horny as she watches somebody uh, hung, uh, fr- uh, you know, like in the public square. So mm. that's, <laughs> that's the energy <laughs> I wanted to bring into my career. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Good. Um, so yeah, Good. you refer to yourself as a bisexual 24-7. Um, you're in a, twi- a collared submissive in a 24-7 DS relationship. And I would love mm-hmm. for you to expand upon that for the audience, for those who aren't sort of familiar with those kinds of terms. Um, and in addition to that, if uh, you want to tell people a little bit more about you outside of just your relationship, just so we can use that as a jumping off point, that would be awesome. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So um, being a 24-7 submissive, um, well, you've got probably the audience is familiar with some form of BDSM um, because that buzzword has infiltrated our culture to such an extreme degree that, you know, thank you Fifty Shades of Grey for doing it deeply wrong in every possible way. Um, But yeah, so DS refers to dominance and submission and um, of a um, consented and negotiated power exchange between equals. So two people who respect each other decide to play opposite power roles for a certain amount of time. And that amount of time is more often than not, it's in the bedroom, it's for sexual purposes. Um, But people who live 24-7 DS have chosen to live the power structure outside of the bedroom. So, you know, when the scene is over, as we call it, um, you know, you, you end it, but then you're still you know, subject to being told what to do or to acting in a certain way. And all of that is based on what you and your partner have decided together is is appropriate and okay for you. So it's very malleable, but people hear that and they think, oh my God, you're locked up in a cage all day. Are you okay? <laughs> it's like, uh, if I'm in a cage, it's because I asked to be in a cage. So. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, and I'm curious how you got here like what if you uh, what 
whatever you're open to sharing in terms of your own journey, um, how much of this sort of came to you prior to entering into the relationship, how much of it was sort of constructed in the relationship. Uh, I feel like I'm, I'm always sort of curious to hear people's like A to Z journeys in a way, like the sort of right. large spectrum that can occur. Like I think some people think that the only kind of people that can be in this kind of a relationship started out from a place of like total sexual embodiment. And um, so mm-hmm. I'm curious like oh, what imagine. your God. path was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wouldn't we all love to be that person? Man, uh, I've yet to meet that person. Yeah, does um, that person exist? Yeah. Uh, if they do, congratulations. I hope you're really happy. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, uh, I, I did not start from that place whatsoever. I mean, if, if we're doing true A to Z for me, I, um, in my teen years got extremely involved in a evangelical Christian church, um, where I, uh, you know, my best quick read on it is that I just was really looking for structure in my life. I had, you know, chaos, um, all around me, you know, um, in, in my family of origin. And I was just this sort of really white knuckly perfectionist. And I just wanted to know that I was good and I was doing everything right. And into that fertile ground, enter Jesus Christ. So, um, I got very wrapped up in what I now would think is like, I ideologically at this point, I think that targeting teenagers for involvement in religion to that extent is not very ethical. Um, so I, at that time got a lot of ideas put into my head about sexuality and relationships and, about the wife that I would one day need to become. And um, I took a purity pledge. I had a bracelet that said worth waiting for. And if anyone asked me what it meant, I would say I'm saving myself for Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, and, and that sort of led me into a very, very long committed vanilla relationship with somebody I knew in high school that I was with for a very long time because it was my first relationship and I had ingested so much information about monogamy and how that was the best thing that I, yeah, I sort of think wasted a lot of years of my life being really unhappy, but not knowing the difference. Um, and then, uh, essentially sort of found myself um, firebombing that relationship as my 20s wore on. Like, I can't do this. This is not right. And I I guess I'm just going to be a really bad person and I'm going to go off and do submission now because I'm flawed and I'm bad. Um, and uh, it was very much if people have seen normal people, there's that show, that great Irish show. Um, there's like this part where the the main character, she's in this BDSM quote unquote relationship with this guy that's just kind of awful to her. And she's like, yeah, this is what it's like. So (laughs) I had a fair amount of that. Um, and then, and then met my current partner and, um, ours just, I found out that this thing about myself that I had thought to be, oh, I'm edgy and I'm broken and I'm weird, like turned out to actually be a point of connectivity for us and like a way for us to have this really wholesome, lovely respectful relationship where it's like also there are these elements and these elements need to be heavily consented to and negotiated so it just gave us this lovely infrastructure to really get to know and respect each other so that's my that's my a to z genesis um yeah it's it's interesting it it brings up i've had several people on the show i have a lot of friends who 
Um, I didn't have a super religious background. I was raised Jewish, but didn't like totally identify with it very much. And thankfully didn't feel super indoctrinated, but certainly had this relationship to sexuality, which was, you know, different from what the culture was telling me. Like it felt like my sexuality, even if I wasn't having sex, right. Just like my sexual embodiment Mm -hmm. felt Mm -hmm. like the sort of cleanest, purest, most sacred part of me which I feel like I've heard reflected from other people too, who like grew up in religion and sort of had to deal with this like dichotomy between this feels like natural and, and more than natural, something like super spiritual and sacred. And yet the, the culture, this religion is telling me it's the opposite. Um, and it's curious too, that the sort of good girl, bad girl thing, (laughs) you went. I'm so sorry. No worries. I'll just put it like, Oh, God, this is just... Okay, now I've got some mood lighting. Perfect. <laughs> so sorry about that. No the worries. good girl, bad girl dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I wonder what your experience that with that has been from thinking that engaging in BDSM or some sort of power dynamic like, made you a bad girl and then sort of embodying a, submissive, a submissiveness that actually allowed you to embody being a good girl and doing, you know, sort of like, again, sacred, pure, clean... <laughs> Yeah, that's really beautiful to put it that way. Yeah, because I think I wish I'd had that experience. I've always sort of thought of um, or I had it installed in me by the church that my sexuality was transgressive. I really remember I remember this book about abstinence that they had us read in a Bible study that said um, your body's urges are just um, Satan's tackle box and he's going to like lure you in. And it was this whole thing about Satan being a fisherman and that didn't really, for me as a writer, didn't really work. So, um, but yeah, no, I think that I had always felt that going into that sexual space, I was like crossing a border into somewhere I I shouldn't be. Um, And, and I think initially with submission, it was like, I was like, yeah, let's take all this bad stuff that I do and put it out um, visibly and just air it out and do it in real life. And then that um, just really accidentally collided with my current dominant, my partner, who um, saw it as something great about me. And uh, and and so I, I had formerly been somebody who wanted to be called bad in bed and told like, oh, you're you're bad, you're this, whatever. And then uh, discovering being a good girl and being told that you're you're good for these things that you had previously considered bad. It really shows you sort of this BDSM alchemy that happens because you're able to redefine the meaning of everything that happens in bed and decide this is good. This is not good or not wanted. And, and it, it, it's really like psychologically really fascinating to watch yourself go through the process of being ashamed about something and then like transmuting it into something that is, an expression of you being good and being, you know, perfect. So, yeah. Yeah. And it is nuanced, right? I mean, I think on both ends, whether you identify as dominant or submissive, you know, you can be submissive in a way that is self-destructive and sort of like perpetuating the trauma that you feel, Mm -hmm. or you can do it in Mm -hmm. a way that's healing it. And obviously the same as the, the other person who you're in a relationship with. Um, do you, what sort of advice would you have to people to sort of, if they're struggling with not knowing whether it's helping or hurting them or whether they've done enough sort of like self-reflective work on themselves in order to decide whether this particular dynamic is actually healthy at any given time? 
Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I get that question um, a fair amount from people, like, how do I know that this is okay? Um, because there is, um, and, and that question often comes from non-men, you know, women and, and people on the femme side of the non-binary spectrum. And the, I think that people who have that lived experience have been told a lot that they don't understand themselves and they don't know what they're getting into. And there's sort of this definitely around sexuality, this like paternalistic narrative that you aren't in control. Um, so then when you heighten that with submission, which is really like not normalized or okay in the mainstream, that you end up with all these questions. So um, just to cut through all of that, um, you know, um, to a certain extent, I think like there, there's a difference between, oh, this thing is shameful and I'm working through it. And this person doesn't respect me. They don't give me aftercare after we play. They're dismissive. I feel um, sick or nervous when I'm leaving or about to see them. Like those kinds of emotions, I think we know them for sure. And we know that they're not right. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of submissives are, are sort of isolated from having a community because a lot of people are sort of like, oh, I'm the one in my friend group and they don't really know what's normal. But mm. Yeah, it's not normal to be to be treated like shit while you're trying to f explore yourself and that unfortunately happens a lot. So like it's it's important for people to know that they that they deserve they deserve the best. So if if they they don't feel like they're being respected and celebrated for what they're bringing to the table, that's that's when you get that's when you need to take a look. Yeah. And I think obviously like communication I feel like is such a big part of it mm -hmm. too and I think another thing that those on the sort of feminine femme side of the spectrum have a lot of difficulty with. And I, I've talked about this before. I feel like not only are, are we afraid to ask the question because we don't feel like we have a right or we don't have the self-esteem or whatever mm -hmm. else, but I think a lot of the time we don't want the answer because we know what it's going to be, you know, like we sort of know yeah. intuitively that this relationship isn't right or like maybe this person's fine, but this just isn't aligned and going in the direction that I want to go in. Um, and, you know, especially I feel like if you identify as submissive to be vulnerable like that, you know, to ask that question is such a sign and such a, a lovely expression of being comfortable with someone in order to ask them that or ask for clarification. Mm -hmm. Um, totally. You know. I, mean, I think that flu like communication is never, easy you know when you when you're in when you're embroiled in you know relationship instagram it's like oh just talk about it and you yeah. know I, I i teach this stuff and there's often times where i'm like curled up in a creepy little ball and i'm like <laughs> I have to talk about something you really don't want to like <laughs> so yeah. you know but the fact that if you feel that there's like collaborative energy on both sides of a conversation like if the person you're with is like okay like it might be hard but let's figure out how to talk about it as opposed to like shutting you down that's another mm -hmm. thing where it's like non-negotiable like people must be able to talk about things um or at least be willing to learn right and i think especially too you know if the the submissive in the relationship feels really frightened bringing these things up because of a history of being shut down or you know to be able to of course practice that within a safe mm -hmm. loving space like is uh, that's the point basically you know yeah. to sort of retrain I mean, oneself you know what's interesting about um that just reminded me that I'm um 
I'm working with a psychiatrist for the first time since quarantine, and I'm really excited about it. I'm learning so much. Um, and uh, they, it, my psychiatrist and I had this conversation about how, like, the way the brain works through trauma or, you know, past bad experiences is, um, like, so for just as an example, and this can be done other ways, I'm taking um, beta blockers for anxiety right now, which I'm, like, really stoked on um and basically what it does is it like you can your brain will feel anxious but but what it is is it's a it's a blood pressure medication that actually keeps your blood pressure from spiking so like your brain is really anxious about something that's happening but the body is calm and um by having that happen when you have a trigger um your body, it's like the way that your body files information is that there's like a folder for that trigger. And anytime it gets reminded, it brings up like that first experience of the trigger, the fear, the, oh my God, I'm not okay. I'm not safe. I'm dying, whatever. Um, but if you bring that trigger up with the context of your body being forcibly calm, then it gets refiled in your brain with that feeling like, oh, I actually am okay. And I, I'm going to live through this and I'm not going to die. And I bring this up because BDSM and a lot of what happens around our scene play is is really similar, actually. So, like, when people have um, shame or a, a fear or something and they want to play with that in a sexual context where they understand that they have a safe word that, that can always stop everything at any moment and transition into a moment of aftercare, which is just like a cuddling check-in. Or like know that they're doing it with someone that they really trust. Um, it does begin, I think, to change the way your brain thinks about whatever thing that is, and um, it's really cool. So like, I think that that like having that constructive space, which you know, it's sexy and interesting and whatever. Like, I think even more so, it's like a psychological like playground to <laughs> change how you file certain fears or, or shames or whatever. So that's like. It's 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 amazing. I could nerd out yeah. on that forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and I guess like the argument for which I sort of talk about in a variety of contexts of moving toward triggers instead of being like, mm -hmm. oh, my God, I'm uncomfortable. Like I have to run out of the room, which I think is a really sort of unfortunate um, variety of like millennial reaction that I so always sort of try to think about and talk about, because I think <clears throat> how do we. How do we move through those things? How do we confront whether the trigger is coming from us or the other person, you know, unless we move yeah. toward it? Um, and I'm assuming you've, you know, there have been certain things in your relationship, in your dynamic where you've thought like, this scares me, but I'm now going to kind of either stay here or move closer toward it in order to kind of unpack it a little bit. Yeah. Can I be specific about of one course. example of that? <laughs> yeah, I would love that. <laughs> it's very specific. Get ready. <laughs> you know? um, no. Um, so my when my partner and I first started seeing each other, I um, <clears throat> struggled with jealousy like very, very much. Like I, I was like, you know, a hundred photos deep in his Instagram feed trying to figure out who which girl liked it. And like I was I was like number one toxic social media stalker girl and I would make myself miserable with it it was like it was it was in itself like a form of masochism just to be like who is this and where you know did they go on a trip together like just stuff that no one needs to be doing and if anyone listening is doing that to themselves put the, put the phone down it's not it's so bad <laughs> uh, but yeah so I that was me and then um we slowly started because I'm, I'm bisexual and um, interested in, in people of all genders. So when we started having um, 
threesomes with 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 women, um, it was a really interesting thing for me because it's like, well, this is something that I want to do, but then I have to deal with the fact that there's somebody else here, and what if she's better than me? What if the da da da? And so, bringing all of that into the safe space of having safe words and trust and whatever, I've actually it's like strangely over time it's gone from pure jealousy to actually this like very keen interest in being told explicitly you're not good enough and she's better than you and that has turned into like my whole a new kink for me which is like (laughs) to be degraded and told I'm not good enough when that formerly was literally my worst fear um it, there's just there's some kind of magic that goes on when <laughs> when you move toward the trigger and like say okay come on in what what do you got and then it turns out to actually not be that powerful or be a new sexual fetish that you have <laughs> right and it's sort of like not only do you get to work through whatever the sort of emotional component of that is but it is interesting to experience that what i think is real is like the correlation between fear and eroticism Oh, yeah. Very fine line. Very thin. (laughs) Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, So I have a question for you about like BDSM, the community, (laughs) whatever that means. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And and sort of, you know, I've always sort of wondered or thought about like the extent to which, you know, engaging in scenes and like, quote unquote, roles and using language and having it in this structured way on the mm-hmm. one hand, helps someone become embodied in themselves and their own sexuality and their own desires mm-hmm. and their own fears. Um, but also I wonder how those sorts of, uh, you know, like it is, it's a scene, right? Like we're, we're putting ourselves mm-hmm. in this situation that isn't necessarily like our everyday waking life. Um, right. And what your journey has been between like utilizing that sort of space to do something sexual, do Mm -hmm. something that involves power dynamics or whatever, um, and how that has or has not sort of leaked into your more like just everyday life, right? Uh, For someone maybe that is, it has sort of these um, dynamics in their relationship, but doesn't identify with like the BDSM community. I'm just sort of curious Mm -hmm. about that intersection and what you've thought Mm -hmm. about. Um, And I guess I just wonder if some of it, of course, a a bunch of it could be really um, helpful, but I wonder if sometimes it's preventative and like, oh, I'm only submissive, like in that one little context and what it might mean Mm. to sort of like embody that quality more uh, in a more comprehensive way. I don't know if that question makes sense. (laughs) No, I think so. No, there's, there's, there's definitely this, um, understanding among among kinksters that some people and a lot of people who play with these themes um come into the bedroom doing something opposite than what they do in life you know like we we have that sort of trope of the you know the ceo that likes to become a male sub and get stepped on and whipped and what whatnot but then um on the flip side like you know not all millennials are CEOs. There's a lot of us who, you know, I actually feel like having been myself deeply indoctrinated growing up with a specific wave of like girl boss feminism that like, I felt like in my real life, this nonstop burnout drive to be and have and do everything, be in charge and, and whatever. And prior to, um, more serious DS play, I found that playing out in my relationships too, where I was like, 
I would be in charge and on my shit all day at work. And then I would go have the per- go to the perfect networking event. And then, and then I'd come home and then my partner would be like, what are we doing? What do I do? And I would have to sort of be running that show too and feel like his mommy. And <laughs> I, uh, you know, found actually through submission this opportunity to consciously and mindfully let go of that. And, and, and then the you know, people are, people can be really afraid of that. Like, what are the feminist implications of me letting go of being a boss all the time? And, um, actually I think it makes you, um, it fills up your well to go out and do it better than to have to be on 100% of the time in every single moment. And like, to me, I find it, it, it actually really is a huge pressure release valve for me to like have this safe area to go be submissive. And then it, like also to your point, like it, it brings into other areas of my life, this kind of sense of like softness and not needing to be in total control. Um, because we're not, no one is in control of anything particularly. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And in terms of it being like detrimental, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I wonder like if we, you know, of course it's impossible to sort of hypothesize about this but in a world that had far less taboo and shame like I wonder how much of this stuff that now is sort of boxed within BDSM would just sort of occur Mm -hmm. within other type you know non-defined relationship structures if that makes sense like playing with power would be uh, a lot more broad right and not just existing like okay well if I'm going to do this then I have to sort of like use this language or identify as such or like do a scene you know what I mean (laughs) You know, it's funny because I I do think that it is playing out in a lot of kinds of relationships and not always in a healthy way because the things that have trickled down from BDSM into, you know, vanilla sex, like part of vanilla sex right now that a lot of people tell me about is the surprise choke is what I have, you know, trademarked. (laughs) Like when you're in an encounter with somebody, you've not had any negotiation or discussion about what's going to happen sexually and suddenly they're choking you, which in the formalized BDSM community is considered a really varsity level, extreme kink. Um, We call it breath play, but because of porn, people are like, Oh, you know, get on your knees for daddy and I'm going to choke you. And it comes out of nowhere because I think people are really afraid of being rejected and they're like, Oh, I'm just going to be really sexy. and I'm going to do this thing. And it's, it's honestly like you're traumatizing people. Um, And yes, I'm talking to cis men primarily, like when they just, osmos information from pornography and just start doing it to people's bodies um and we have a lot of that and and what bdsm offers is this structure um which people for some reason just aren't comfortable with the structure but they're willing to do the acts but the structure is you negotiate what's going to happen and you say hey is it okay if you know in five minutes when we're having sex if i choke you and and if i do and, and you don't like it can you you know call your safe word and once you call your safe word, then we're going to transition into a moment where we're not talking and we're just holding each other until your nervous system gets back to normal. Like that's what the BDSM structure is. But people have just, I think in vanilla culture, there's this decision that talking, having a meta conversation about what's going to happen sexually will ruin it um, or be unsexy or will lead to rejection. And in reality, it's just, it's actually, it's, it's, it is very sexy and nice for someone to care enough about you to be like, this is what, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. And I think like yeah. with two conscious partners in that space, that communication and, 
using safe words and being really honest is like valued and upheld as such mm-hmm. a sort of pillar of the relationship, you know? And mm-hmm. I mean, I've had experiences too of even men sometimes suspend, you know, the woman, this, I just heard this recently, like this, this uh, girl was like, what do you want? You know, I, I want to like do what you find sexy and like, want to have the mm-hmm. best sex and so like tell me what it is you want and he suggested something that wasn't even that crazy like you know he wanted her to be mm-hmm. on top of him and like have her feet on the bed and she said something nice. to him like oh well you know like I'm not a sex worker like what do you think I am a porn star and I just like I heard that and I just felt like so terrible for the guy who like vulnerably expressed his like not even that crazy of a kick thing <laughs> um, yeah. and then shut him down whereas I feel like in another kind of context or a a relationship with a different set of principles that that communication is like such an important valued piece of it um yeah and I I think it's treating someone's sexual interests with tenderness and curiosity is is a lot of the culture of BDSM and that's just like that's such a trap that she did, like inviting yeah. him to open up and then like immediately shutting it down and judging him for it. I mean, that is what people are afraid of when they right. don't want to talk about what they want. Right. That's really messed up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I thought so. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about, you talk about this a lot and I really love it. I talk in very broad strokes about like energetically not associated with a gender, but like feminine and masculine energies and sort of what mm-hmm. like pow- a feminine power looks like. Um, yeah. So I, th- I think a lot of women who identify as submissive or just feel that like that's a big part of them that they don't realize that that is powerful, right? They think that that's somehow lacking in power. Um, And I would like if you could elaborate a little bit on why that's incorrect, at least if used appropriately, and what might some examples be of like submissive power. Yeah, well, now that I'm like, that was me 100% when I first began, and and I'll definitely speak to that. But now I've gotten to a point where I'm like, you know, um, <laughs> I'm so far beyond being concerned about it. So there is a place where I'm like, yeah, I'm giving up power. What, what do you want from me? I don't give, I don't give a shit, but <laughs> there's all, but yeah, when you're starting out, that's really scary because, um, uh, Esther Perel talks about this. I love her work. And, um, I think it's in her book, Meaning in Captivity. She talks about how, um, American culture is really, really fixated on equality as the only form of showing respect to your partner. So, everything must be divided equal 50 50 like you split the popsicle in half and that's your relationship and everybody has the same stuff and that actually the idea that equality equals respect like for us feels so ingrained and essentially true it's not essentially true i think that in in bdsm you have this opportunity where if there is mutual respect you say you're a great person i admire you you're, you're important, you're, you know, et cetera. And then you say, okay, now we're going to play these complementary power roles by shifting into the bottom role. You've not lost any of the power that you had five seconds ago when you guys were sitting side by side in the bar and now you're, you know, whatever, now you're in the bed. It's, um, so what, what submission does is, you know, you ultimately have your hands on the steering wheel, um, or sorry, Actually, no, I'm going to use the thing that my dom says, which is very eloquent and I haven't memorized, but he he says that (laughs) the dom has his hands on the steering wheel or their hands and the sub has their foot on the brake. Um, So even though the dom is like steering the 
activities and they're, you know, leading you in a certain direction, you can always hit the brakes. And the power to hit the brakes is what means that you are an equal. And the brakes are, your, you know, typically your safe word. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, the sub really, like nothing can happen without the sub's consent. So you're really, you're enabling this other person to enact their kinks, to have a good time. And it's, a lot of it is really focused on you. There's no like, complete discard of what you want and what you're interested in you, you know you've got your foot on the brakes you're along for the ride and you're just playing a different part than perfect equals and everything is the same and and playing a different role it's okay <laughs> um, but it can really feel like it's not okay when you're first starting out yeah well, and I think too, although, I mean, and this is just one of the many devastating aspects of our culture and patriarchal culture in general, capitalist culture, mm -hmm. um, is that I do think that things like vulnerability, relinquishing control, yeah. like trust, oh, yeah. those are extremely, mm -hmm. extremely powerful, right? Those are, mm -hmm. in my mind, undoubtedly could be defined as power. And yet within this context not only have those things I feel like been uh, taken off their sort of like pedestal of power mm -hmm. and also abused, right? Because obviously those types of things are easy to be abused, unlike the things that you were talking about, where you were like embodying more sort of like masculine dominant qualities, although that wasn't right. aligned for you in this society, it was like a safer, protected place to be. Yeah. Well, when we have the inherited patriarchy of you know, women don't make choices. Women are unempowered. Women lie on their back for sex and that's all they're allowed to do. And, you know, there's, we have all this inherited imagery of, of something very bad that we're all working to fix. And like, yes, patriarchy is very bad, but that is because prior to, you know, modern day, women didn't consent to all of that. That just happened to them. And if they didn't fall in line, they were put in a mental hospital. So, um, you know, you think about, uh, I, I say this often about like BDSM versus abuse. So like, you know, that it, from the outside, if you're looking in the window and you see someone getting spanked with a wooden spoon in the kitchen or whatnot, you know, you don't, maybe you can see their faces and tell, but you don't really know from the outside whether it's bad or it's good. And it's sort of the same thing with like every single aspect of submission that if someone had no context clues and were looking in the window at you, then they would be like, oh, something, something terrible is happening here. But you have the context clues within yourself to know that it's actually really lovely and you're having a good time. And, and that these various sensory inputs or ways that you express yourself sexually, all of the meaning that has been put on them has been put on them by society and inherited from that patriarchy and everything that we've been doing to counteract it. And it's like in a vacuum, enjoying the sensation of a hand slapping against your butt it doesn't real. it doesn't mean anything. It just is a sensation that you enjoy, but then all of that meaning comes pouring in and we don't, it's like, Oh my God, like how could I possibly enjoy this physical sensation? It's just a physical sensation, you know, and you can decide that, all that stuff, it can stay on the other side of the window, just like close the curtains and <laughs> not be observed by it. Yeah. And I would imagine too, like, you know, regarding whether or not the person on the outside can sort of see whether or not the person is enjoying it, enjoying, like mm -hmm. using air quotes. Um, I, I'm curious to hear you talk about like different expressions of enjoyment as well. Like, so 
obviously certain forms of BDSM are physical and actually hurt. And so like maybe you're in pain or crying or um, how can those sort of not like I'm smiling and having an orgasm sensation, like anything outside of that um, in your experience, like how is that also like pleasurable and beneficial and sort of growth provoking? Yeah. Well, I think that um, what's really interesting, like impact is what has how we formally title um, the feeling, you know, getting spanked or flogged or hit with a crop or whatever, which all of the above, I personally very much love. Um, And it's very interesting because you um, from the outside and prior to prior to doing it myself, I thought like, oh, pain, it's going to be like it's hard to describe because pain that you have a normal experience of is like you stub your toe, you're you're brushing the knots out of your hair. Like, you know, you get soap in your eye. Like these are the kinds of things that happen normally. And that's what we normally associate with pain. But all of those experiences like headache is non-consensual. So when you're intentionally inviting those um, feelings, you also um, are ramping up the adrenaline and endorphins in your brain. So what it, strangely can do for some people is it's almost like turning your own body and the sensations within it into like a drug and you get into this uh, headspace that's um that we call it subspace um but it's not unlike like a runner's high or a yoga high so like the pain itself as you're feeling it sort of changes into something else and it it feels um I think that's part of like the adrenaline. Like if you've ever gotten a tattoo and like halfway through the tattoo, you're starting to feel like, oh, like and everything <laughs> it feels great. And you're like, everything's fine. Or maybe that's just me. Maybe some people suffer through the whole tattoo. But um, yeah, it, there's there's this opportunity to to also take ownership and recontextualize the physical experience of pain. Um, and some people as part of that will have this cathartic experience of crying. And that is they love it because they're getting out all this sort of gunk that's been inside and it can kind of, it can come out through this, through this way. My, um, my therapist, yeah, I have a psychiatrist and a therapist that I've mentioned so so far, but my, (laughs) my therapist, um, and I were talking about it where she was saying that like, there is something that like something that can't be replicated in any other form of stress relief than to hit something or to be hit that like it, that if you're doing it consensually and thoughtfully that like, it can really like shake out stress from, from the body. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's not an orgasm, but it's like, you know, all of that stuff that I just did to try to explain that feeling, it'd probably be just as complicated to explain to somebody what an orgasm was, you know, but it's like equally (laughs) valid and exciting and just it's the brain is, is amazing. So why not turn, turn up the dials sometimes? (laughs) Yeah. Do you think some of it too is like experiencing those types of feelings whether that be fear or pain or um, just even like sadness, Uh, maybe, you know, sort of diving a little bit deeper into like trauma, specifically maybe early childhood trauma Mm -hmm. of like putting Mm -hmm. yourself back in sort of like similar emotional uh, situations, but in a very different context. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm curious what your journey has been or just like what you've talked to people about specifically in regard to like putting themselves back in a very similar situation that used to feel traumatizing or was traumatizing or was abusive, but using it as a way again to like retrain as we kind of mentioned. Yeah. I think you'd be hard pressed to find a person who didn't in their childhood at some point feel out of control and like 
and then, you know, feel then as an adult fearful of giving up control. Like it's on a spectrum like anything. But um, yeah, when you then take that feeling and, and, you know, I like to say that BDSM is safe danger. So it's like, it, it's, um, you know, bungee jumping rather than jumping off a cliff with no wire, like you're attached, but it is, there can be like exhilaration and fear. Um, but yeah, bringing that context of like a fear of, of losing control and then doing it intentionally and getting through it without feeling triggered, you can really feel incredibly powerful. And then weirdly, like, oh, I'm in control of not being in control. So I, <laughs> I, I own that emotion now and I can sort of, you know, it's just like with, um, like the, the more that you, the more that you meditate, uh, the more that you learn that your thoughts are like optional and you can kind of attach to them or not as they go through your head. And like the, the same with like, you know, in a way BDSM, like the more you practice, the more you find that anything is up for recontextualization if you, if you want to work on it. So yeah, being in control of being out of control, safely dangerous. Like these are these kinds of weird uh, paradoxes that just sort of happen naturally the more you play with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you, was it difficult for you when you first started either when you were first in this relationship or just sort of first coming to terms with all of this, like navigating your specifically maybe female friendships, like did not, did that, does it sort of feel like an alienating position? <laughs> um, yeah. And how did you navigate well, yeah, that? I just, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I just made like really huge eyeballs at you while you're trying to finish <laughs> that. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think that for me, um, at the time when I was first really seriously doing this, I think that there, you know, I live in Los Angeles, I'm living this very like metropolitan, urban, cool, woke, hipster, you know, thing. And all of my friends, um, it's almost like there is like this sort of feminist solidarity that everyone has agreed together. These are the things that we all do and we're working really hard to do them. And as soon as I came in, I'm like, I'm letting a man put me on a leash. They were like, you can't do that. <laughs> so I think that people's like self-investment in like their own sexual mores and the things that they think are important, they can become very threatened and uncomfortable because they're just it, and it's not anyone's fault but yeah there were some comments as it was starting up where people were like just completely perplexed by it and they were like well don't you want to be the dom because that's you know being powerful and like what we just talked about and like I and and I uh yeah I had to do some editing of of certain friends who had just could not hang with with this and I think like to anybody who has friends, you know, you want to see the friends happy in their own language and not in what you expect from them. And like the best friends are people who are like, I see that you're happy. Even if I don't understand it, I'm happy that you're happy. And, and, you know, uh, it gave me a really good opportunity to find out <laughs> which friends those people were. Mm -hmm. Um, and now, like, years down the road, like, many of those friends are like, hey, so I really want to uh, get spanked. How do you uh, make that happen? So, like, thankfully, uh, yeah, it's, it's all worked to my benefit. Now I'm, now I'm the, the advice guy, not just online, but among my friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, would, I would love to talk more, too, about, like, for sure, that sort of feminist rhetoric around 
It's very, mm-hmm. like, man-masculine demeaning and hating. Um, and I'm yeah. curious what your journey has been with that through BDSM and through, you know, playing with power and um, what your thoughts are and how they've grown in relation to, like, the sort of beauty of masculinity or positive aspects of masculinity. Um, yeah. There's, like... You know, as a, as a, I I relate to this question primarily as a bisexual who has always felt deeply rejected by the queer community, um, because, uh, you know, there's this sort of thing and it just happened to me online. I just got like a a pile on, on Twitter, um, being like, you know, there's this strange thing out there among the queer community where they, to bisexuals, where there's this sort of feeling that you're more legitimate if you're, if you're with a woman, uh, if you're, if you're a woman and you're with a woman or with someone of the same, you know, same sex uh, presentation, but if you're with a man or someone of the quote unquote opposite sex, then you're illegitimate and you know, oh, that's really problematic. You like men, you're canceled. Like there's sort of this feeling. So I had always had this like lack of legitimacy feeling, even though like you know, as a bisexual, like you feel like you want to walk around with a pie chart of like what genders you've slept with. So everybody can know that like, actually the men are a very slim sliver of (laughs) like, um, but yeah. So like taking that context and then like playing with this, like actually really healthy, like beautiful version of masculinity that my partner gets to embody in dominance, like seeing like, these sort of factors that we like, there's so much online all the time in, in the world, everywhere of masculine, toxic masculinity, toxic masculinity all day, every day, you know, especially like with our, our political climate, the last four years, it's just been nothing but reminders of what's bad about men. But then, um, you know, there are things within the masculinity umbrella that are like really beautiful and my my partner and I like to call it like head of the table energy you know (laughs) like where you're sitting at the head of the table at Thanksgiving and you're like you know presiding over like your your family and there's you know like feelings of like mentorship and and tenderness and and these things express differently than they would in a feminine way and it's really cool to be around and to witness and when you are steeped in a society that is just like teeming with really triggering and shitty male behavior to then like come into a context where it's negotiated and it's like lovely and beautiful. And you see someone like assuming this sort of like power based on the ingredients they were born with, like that's amazing. And it's really healing for me too. Cause like who among us doesn't have daddy issues, you know? So like getting to have um, a safe a negotiated relationship with a man the way that you wouldn't have with your own father, you know, you don't get to choose how your dad acts, but you can choose how your partner acts. And yeah, just brought it right Mm -hmm. into the dad stuff. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to talk more about the dad stuff? Because I'm always done. Oh, sure. Listen, the dad stuff. Who doesn't have dad stuff? It's so funny. I mean, like, there's like a tweet that I'm paraphrasing that's like, that's like, you know, we all talk about women having daddy issues, but how about dads be better dads? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, the BDSM, like people are always afraid. They're like, well, yeah, I don't want to call my partner daddy because I have daddy issues. Like, that's mm-hmm. not me. I don't have issues. But like, I think many of us millennials who were raised by boomer parents grew up in an environment probably of not the best representations of masculinity. Um 
you know, probably, and I'm trying to have empathy for boomer men because they, you know, they're really running the world off a cliff, but so you just have to like get into some mindset where you can understand it. But I just think like they had and have so much pressure on them to enact this very specific gender role, whether they like it or not. And so that just, there was no like lateral movement from that, like one bullseye of masculinity that they're supposed to be. And they just became, I think at times like really stressed out about that, especially like my own dad, I think clearly like made it obvious to us sometimes that having to be that way was really awful for him. But I don't think that he like saw an alternative. And, you know, when we millennials come along and we're like, gender's a spectrum, they're like, God damn it. I've spent my whole life trying to do this one thing. So they can become really threatened and angry by like the way that we engage with gender differently. And like, I think BDSM is a whole nother level of that where it's like, you know what, I'm going to engage with gender and the concept of fatherhood and masculinity and all this in a negotiated way that's my very own. And (laughs) that's okay for me. But I think that for other generations, it's been like a little bit like, how dare you to see us as millennials, like sort of messing with their shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I've talked about daddy issues before because everyone always said that I had daddy issues because I was always interested in older men. And the weird part about me is that my dad's gay and was like my best friend and was a really amazing dad. And so I was always confused. Like, I don't really get, you know, this whole daddy issue thing because I feel like what you're defining Uh as such is very different than me. Um, And then later in life, after like a serious dark night of the soul and lots and lots of therapy um, and grief, um, (laughs) sort of came to this realization of like, oh, like my daddy issue is probably that like I felt like growing up, my dad was the only one that understood me. And so I'm intuitively Mm. trying to find men like him that remind me of him, not gay, hopefully Uh, not. I mean, in general. Yeah. So I think it's like it's always. But even that right to sort of associate one's current erotic or romantic life with your father or your parents, right? Like, I think that's where the sort of discomfort comes in. Um, And I think we should all just normalize that because I think all of our romantic relationships are in many ways, like trying to heal or perpetuate our relationships with our parents in one way or another. Well, definitely. It's just sort of the basics of attachment theory. Like if you don't want to think about it and like sexually, which you probably should, I mean, like sexually, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let that space be its own space, but like relationship wise, <laughs> like, yeah, like you, you've been, get, you, you learned your model of how you, um, attach to people from the way that your parent, how consistent your parents were at giving you affection when you were little and, you know, that is how it's like, you know, it's, it's like, your your brain was built with those hands. So of course there's going to be little markings left over and ways that you fit into the world that have to do with the way that those people did things. Like, it's not like you just drop from the sky one day. You know? um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think like very, I mean, it's, it's really hard to analyze though, because um, having any kind of awareness of like your parents having failed or given you something some difficult thing that you have to carry into adulthood is like really not something you want to realize because it can change the way that you look back at things and nobody really wants nobody wants that either but um it can give you like this like really elevated sense of like why you do the things that you do and how you engage with things and in fact like interrupt cycles of doing stuff the same way just because um that may not be healthy for you um yeah, everybody has daddy issues. Just embrace your daddy issues. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, 
I, I know we sort of mentioned it a bit, but I think it's a really important point to bring up, um, especially in talking about how, you know, I, I went through a whole journey with like thinking about uh, relationships as transactional. And I had a very mm. sort of in my past transactional relationship where I felt like it was a lot of like, well, I do this for you. So you do this for me kind of a thing. Um, oh, yeah. And it, it caused me to sort of like outright reject the concept that relationships were transactional. And then I feel like I sort yeah. of came through it a little bit into a cycle where I recognize and not maybe using the word transactional, but if we think of like healthy energy exchange, right? Like, of course, mm -hmm. if we look at the world mm -hmm. or nature, like everything's reciprocal and transactional in a, in a way. And that's not bad, you know, mm -hmm. if, if it's, if it's healthy and flowing. Um, so I think a lot of people that I've spoken to, especially women, because I think they're coming from a place of fear and past abuse and being taken advantage mm -hmm. of, um, that they feel mm -hmm. like the way to construct a relationship is, is to have it be like, here are the set of rules and we both follow it. Right. Yeah. So if we bring up, let's say like non-monogamy, for example, I'd love for you to talk right. a little bit about how your relationship is, is structured and how equality mm -hmm. doesn't have to mean identical sameness on both sides, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that identical sameness on both sides, like can, can actually be extremely nebulous and, um, each person has identified privately in their mind what a good partner does. And then they're constantly looking at their partner, like, are you doing this thing that I've I decided? And, oh, no. Oh, <laughs> and so that I think over time, and then especially as people get married and then add the completely chaotic, like warfare of raising small children into that mixture, that's why you end up with so many unhappy marriages is because you're thinking like, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing. And then they're not doing that thing. And then it's like, oh, you didn't do the thing, you know? Right. Um, and whereas the way that my partner and I have chosen to live, and this is not the only antidote to that, but the way that we've chosen to use our dominance and submissive roles to, um, put expectations out extremely clearly. Um, like if my dom wants me to do something, he says, Hey, go, you know, do this. And I'm like, and then I'll say yes, or I'll call my safe word and I'll say, no, I don't want to do that. And then we'll talk about why I don't want to do it. But, um, I think, uh, you know, the longer that I'm in this relationship and any, you know, just being a person, you realize that there's in for, maybe this is incredibly personal or maybe it's broadly applicable. I don't know. But for me, like the, the feeling of a successful relationship requires a lot of, offering your best energy to the other person like thoughtfully as a gift and think like you know oh you know what can I do to just be a little bit more you know engaged or soft or, or giving with you and and then when you're coming from that energy rather than holding back and waiting for them to check off boxes of your secret decisions of like what would make a good partner it things flow in a way that's a lot more constructive. Um, so yeah, that, that's one way that like the structure has really like benefited us is just to be like, these are the expectations. Like for me, um, you know, we've, we've negotiated and I was part of negotiating this, but we've negotiated that I'll like make dinner a certain number of times a week. Cause we didn't want to eat out as much. And like, that's something I wanted to do. That's something that he wants to help with. Like, and that just happens. And then when it doesn't happen, there's like a punishment, which people, <laughs> people react very violently to that idea, but there, which, but I like it. And it's for my relationship. Uh, I want to know that if I don't make dinner four times in the week and 
do my healthy meal planning that I'm going to get uh, bent over and spanked, which, like, you know, that is what keeps me going. But if there's something else that motivates people, that's great, too. But, yeah, I don't know. Just having everything out on the table is so crucial to because it's informed consent at the end of the day. And we think consent is only in the bedroom. Like, oh, what are you going to, like, do to me next? But in the relationship, like, people should know be informed about what it takes to be a good partner to you. And, and that's, I mean, they're not going to know unless you really explicitly lay it out in like a non already angry way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you, I wonder too, if it's more acceptable or just common practice in the BDSM community, because I, I definitely have a lot of friends that um, are in non-monogamous relationships and I feel like, Oh yeah. There's this very, you know, it's always sort of a conflict of like, you're allowed to do this. I'm allowed to do this. Like, but what if you're allowed to do this one thing that I'm not right. And I think in BDSM, it makes it a little bit easier because there are these power dynamics so often so that, you know, again, the words are hard, but like that lack of sameness, um, makes sense within that context. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, uh, definitely. Cause people from the, the, not the, full poly or, um, open relationship. My, our non-monogamy is like non-monogamy light. Cause we will we'll have, we'll play together with third people, but neither of us has relationships like separate mm-hmm. one-on-one encounters. Cause that's just what we prefer. But, um, there people will write me from the, um, poly and like fully open community and be like, talk about the one dick rule and how fucked that is. And I'm like, Whoa, you know, but like (laughs) people do come, I mean, which essentially what that means is that, um, and it's a common arrangement where if there's, um, you know, a man and a woman together and one of them has a penis, like the, the penis person can, um, basically they can see vagina people and the other vagina person in that relationship can only see vagina people and there's only one penis in the situation so like people look at that and they're like oh it's just like a man wanting a harem or blah 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 and there's like a lot of like judgment and then but to me it's like if both partners in that arrangement like that arrangement or if they feel um that it's meeting their needs or if that um penis person has hard limits around other penises for whatever reason, you know, because a lot of us have issues with (laughs) penis having people have, you know, um, that people's consent is their business. But like, there's this, there's this, that weird, again, patriarchal thing that seeps into the way that we each individually express our relationships. And we feel like responsible personally for undoing the patriarchy in every single level of our relationship. And it's like, in certain ways, like, just having a relationship that's consented and negotiated and positive and working for people is the dismantling. You don't need to like then split the popsicle in this perfect exact way. If it works for you, you know, then that's, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's what we sort of take for granted in BDSM because it's like, of course this is not okay. Like by patriarchal standards, but we know that it's okay for us. So it's like, yeah, if that can like bleed into the non-monogamy world a little more of just like what's okay for us is okay for us. And that in itself is the radical work and, and, yeah, there's, it's, yeah, just because in a way the patriarchy ends up running your life again. If you're, if you're so concerned about combating it in in every single moment, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder too, if the jealousy thing is more easily managed within the BDSM community. Um, whereas I think when it's like, <laughs> you're shaking your head, maybe. Um, I'm sorry. I've got such an expressive head. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. 
Um, (laughs) And the only reason I say that is like, of course, that doesn't mean necessarily that people aren't jealous, but I'm curious about your experience. Like, because so you're collared, right? The words are difficult again, but like you sort of belong to this (laughs) person. You guys, you guys play with other women, uh, but there's something about your relationship with your partner that is very specific and special. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, 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 I feel like that, you know, although very uncomfortable p- for people and like, oh, I don't want to like belong to anyone and I'm free and all that kind of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether or not that's sort of like monogamy, where it's like we're a partnership, we're a team, that that can exist mm-hmm. within more complex, both like sexual or romantic spaces, erotic spaces. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the experience of being collared, it's it's really interesting because what happens with collaring is that... So a collar is like a, almost like, it's like a fashion accessory, but you, you know, it's something that you wear around your neck. It doesn't look dissimilar to a choker. This is traditionally, but people have sort of done their own thing where there's, you know, um, some kind of hardware effects that you might be able to like attach a leash to like a dog collar. That's where the word comes from. Um, but, uh, it, you know, so, but, but in BDSM, when you present a collar to your partner, you know, typically a dom presents their sub with a, a collar, it, um, it comes with it a set of agreements of what that relationship means and what uh, what those people mean to each other. And and for me and my dom, we collared pretty um, fairly early into our relationship as sort of a signifying gesture of that, like, no one was going to ghost each other. We were both interested. We wanted to try this thing out. We wanted to formally commit to, like, I'm the sub, you're the dom. These are the rules. And, and we had a, an open define the relationship conversation about exactly what that meant. And, um, and, and yeah. And so then within that, like ownership, quote unquote, you just really know where you stand. Um, and, and to me that, that can be really, really helpful in opposition to like fluidity and, and, um, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily safeguard against jealousy in the same way. Cause I know a lot of subs, um, whose partners, whose doms are non-monogamous or they're non-monogamous that there can be like, um, this sort of sense of insecurity of like you, the grass is always greener. So you just assume that any other sub that your dom is seeing probably is like really hardcore and does all this stuff that I don't do. And and I'm not enough. And, and every single sub is like, I'm not enough. I'm not hardcore enough. Um, but, uh, I, I sort of have to remind people that like, there's only one of you and what you bring is really, really special. So when you're being jealous, like you're, creating someone in your head that's like perfect you and and that doesn't exist like there's no you know so like each person has their own special values and that they bring to the table and yeah even with a caller people can really like get in their heads but that's just human nature about jealousy it's just it's just gonna happen (laughs) right and of course like if you are with someone you're a partner or a dom that is like, oh, to mm-hmm. me, what's valuable is like how hardcore you are. Then like, that's probably not the best right. place to be with anyway, you know, like authenticity no. and vulnerability, <laughs> like those qualities yeah. should be valued over like, you know, I just disassociate and do whatever you say, like for a, a conscious yeah. person, that's not a quality to be uh, thrilled about. Um, yeah. So what do you, do you have a little bit more time? Yeah. Are you oh, good? Yeah. Okay. Um, oh yeah. What do you say to people and or what has your experience been um, with BDSM, with being in the type of relationship that you're in? How does that correlate to sort of the common rhetoric around like passion and desire in relationships can't last that sort of like hunger that you feel initially in that honeymoon phase? Like, 
automatically goes away and all sexual uh, connections in a relationship fizzle. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, this, this is great. Actually, I <laughs> yeah. just I um, I'm I'm right now I'm I'm I've been working on a and like a an in depth like online course for people who want to start their own twenty four seven or more like ongoing dom, dom sub dynamics and I literally just like wrote a chapter about this. So, oh, um, what? Uh, yeah. So so basically, the the things that kill passion and desire in long term relationships are um, boredom and codependence. Um, so. I'll start with codependence because that's sort of interesting. It's like the the concept of codependence, which I didn't even know this. I've just heard the word, but the concept comes from um, uh, people in relationships with alcoholics or people or addicts. Um, and, and so they, that the person who is the dependent is the person who has a substance abuse issue. And then the person in the relationship with them are dependent on the dependent person. So they are co- almost codependent on the alcohol because they need that person's instability to make them feel in control. Um, but that sort of broadened out to like a whole different category of people, of people in relationships where you sort of see your partner as an extension of your sense of self to such a degree that it's controlling them means controlling your world. And like that can come in like small ways or large ways. But um, for a lot of women, for example, it's like, do you like me? And like, what can I do to be liked? And just like living your life trying to be liked and um and the dom sub dynamic can like really disrupt that and my partner and I have really dealt with that hands on quite a bit because i am like very much the girl of he's secretly upset with me for this thing that i did and i'm like you're just thinking like i'm going to hear at any moment that the thing that i did he's upset with me and and he, we had to have like a real like come to Jesus talk about this because he's like, you need to allow me the autonomy to tell you if I'm upset with you. And you need to trust that if I'm upset with you, I will explicitly tell you. And so he even had to say, he was like, if you're not actively getting, you know, spanked for something, you can assume that it's okay. And you're not allowed, in fact, to spin off in that cycle because then you're, I'm like casting him in my brain as a role that he's not consenting to playing as this like person that's constantly dissatisfied with me. And he's like, I've given you no indication that that's the deal. So that can be great. Just the communication factor of dom sub dynamics where the sub is transgressing their role if they're trying to exercise that level of codependent control on the other partner. And then boredom (laughs) that's, you know, um, often like, desire wanes because we get really addicted to the thrill of like new sexual experiences because the brain is like they're dangerous you know like I don't know this person or I'm in a new place or I'm trying something I've never tried or I'm still figuring out their body or whatever and as that goes away the brain is more like oh let's just cuddle like I want that oxytocin hit I want to stare into your eyes I want to bond and that kind of feeling doesn't lead to like heart racing, freaky, weird sex quite so much. Um, but the, the joy of BDSM is that you can hack into the body with, with, um, you know, impact and all kinds of kinky experiences and play with that dangerous element intentionally at any time and tell the body, like, even if you've done this before, something exciting is happening. So then, you know, the, I think the human brain is like, it's wonderful, but it's also very dumb. So you can just tell the brain like, oh, something exciting is happening. It's like something exciting is happening. And then, you know, all the things just start firing off and you're like having a great time again. So yeah, BDSM basically, basically I'd say like has the infrastructure to really like specifically guard against those two things, which is not 
you know, when you hear BDSM, you're not thinking, oh, a safeguard against codependence and boredom. You're thinking like, oh, it's weird and it's in a dungeon. But like, um, ultimately, it's just a structure that can help people uh, have what they want, which sometimes includes weird sex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I wonder, too, if it has to do with you know, because you're engaging in this sort of like, I mean, fantasy has always been a weird word for me because I feel like fantasy mm-hmm. is like something that you can't actually do in real life, which I don't agree mm-hmm. with. Um, but sort of engaging <laughs> with your partner vulnerably in your own fantasies and your own desires, you mm-hmm. know, like how many people are in vanilla relationships and like, they are so craving of a certain kind of sexual energy, whether that's like playing with power or impact, like whatever it is. But they're not communicating. They don't feel safe to communicate with that. So they're just sort of limited. It's like only 15% of their sexual embodiment can be present in that relationship. And eventually, like, you just get bored with the 15%, you know? Yeah, of course you're bored with 15%. But, like, that's, you know, the joy of, of, of being able to communicate is you can always sort of, like, I think that sexuality, it's almost like a, a room that you're in initially with your partner. And like, you, you sort of, when you don't know that person very well, you're like, okay, this is the whole room. We're in this room. I'm, I'm showing you everything. And that's that 15%, right? But then as time goes on, you kind of have to knock down walls because you can't just live in one room forever. So, and you can't live on 15%. So it's like having the, that communicative infrastructure to be like, let's go here. Let's try this. Let's expand. Um, and know that that person's along for the ride with you. Like that's all that it really is in BDSM. And it's just inflected in a certain tone, but people should have that no matter what, like if it's like, we can have sex in, you know, these three positions at this time of the day and, you know, say these things and then go to bed. Like, of course people are going to get bored with that. It's like, are you going to eat the same breakfast every day for 50 years? Probably not. You know? Um, Yeah, it's 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 a strange thing where people but it it's true that it's like the more you invest in a relationship the scarier it becomes to like maybe go out on a limb and be like, you know, I mean, for pee on me or something. You know, like that's that's right. my pull of what a weird kink would be. But you know what I mean? Like and and <laughs> the deep fear that would come along with that. Uh yeah, and and it's it totally makes sense that people are afraid of bringing things up with their partners, but it's so much more dangerous to be dissatisfied than it is to be vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just in terms of being a sexual person in a relationship, I mean, I think the whole Madonna whore thing was always like something I always felt like, oh, men have that and they project onto women. And then I feel like as I got older, I sort of realized that I had that fear. Like, how can I be both a partner and a desire, like someone that you desire? Like, um, yeah. And, and I think in order to sort of allow whatever that space is I mean whether it's you know a BDSM relationship or not you know you can't necessarily like just to allow the wholeness of someone's sexuality you know you can't expect that like the guy that you're Mm -hmm. with is gonna like throw you up against a wall and like desire you so passionately but like never ever feel that way about anyone ever in their whole life you know (laughs) or vice versa you know like guys want the the woman to be like super sexual and, you know, passionate and kind of animalistic. But then the second the sex mm-hmm. ends or the second, you know, they look at another guy, it's like they're horrified and criticize them because right. um, they just want that for themselves, you know, which is totally unrealistic. But I think that's a big part of it, too. Just like allowing the full spectrum of someone's sexuality into the space yeah. of your relationship. And that can come from a codependent to- place, too, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea that you have um, complete ownership over your partner's erotic life is um, 
sort of the expectation, you know, in relationships of like, oh, well, I know everything about you. I know everything you think about. I know blah, blah, blah. You know, I, you know, if you watch porn, that's, you know, cheating, which I think that's the most absurd thing ever in the world. But um, <laughs> like, but like, why would you want to have a complete comprehensive knowledge of everything in the person's psyche that, you know, with nothing left to discover? Like we don't, even a DS relationship, we don't owe each other that kind of total ownership, like having your own autonomous, interesting inner life, and then sharing that with somebody, you know, oh, I looked at that person and thought that they were cute or whatever. Like that stuff is, it's what makes life interesting to have like an ongoing changing thing. And, and like also to the point of like somebody thinking somebody else is cute. Yeah. But then they chose to keep being with you. So that's like, it's like, it's very validating. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm so far down the road of having recontextualized stuff like this that I'm like, you know, I personally, I like, I like love it. I'm like, Oh, did you think she was cute? She's cute. I think she's cute. You know, but like, it's definitely um, me. I think Always it's great. Me, yeah. yeah. Is that, is that a mood? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was frustrating. I remember so many times when I'd be like walking down the street with my partner and be like, look how hot she is and he would be like what, yeah. what? Like, like come on wait now we're like getting into the point where you're gonna lie to me about the fact that you think she's hot like the whole thing was oh was totally maddening and and yeah it would have I always felt like you know what I want is like an honest long-term like healthy relationship and it just never made sense to me that that could exist without obviously honesty and without yeah. you know my partner and myself you know just showing ourselves to the other person and you know why wouldn't mm-hmm. it be more fun like okay you watch porn well like I kind of want to see yeah. what it what it is or like you know let's watch it yeah. together or, like <laughs> tell me about it or talk to me about it when we're having right. sex you know, all of those things just intuitively made more sense to me um and I think mm-hmm. the lying about it and the hiding actually made me more uncomfortable um, yeah, it's it is weird. It's it's yeah. very bizarre when it's like, oh well, society portrays that we only do these things together. But it's like, what could be more messy and complicated and strange than two human beings with their own distinct life experiences exploring sex together? Like, of course it's going to get weird. Of course there's going to be stuff that you don't expect. Of course there's going to be stuff that like the broadest definition of sex doesn't encompass. And it's like just I think having an attitude of curiosity about that stuff rather than being threatened or think that you're failing or transgressing something that you shouldn't be just because you're like I don't know like yeah you watch a porn that you know I'm I'm a brunette but sometimes you like to look at blonde women oh my god (laughs) it can be nice to like find out other stuff um but yeah you do have to have like an ability to be sort of mentally flexible about it and not go into that jealous place that's that is totally legit and hard yeah yeah and I think having those conversations I mean of course it's like on the one hand, you could have some kink or desire that you share with your partner. And as it turns out, like they also have it. So yay. Or let's say you have this desire and you share it with your partner and they're super judgmental about it and unaccepting. Then like, that's good information to have about that relationship in the, in the the first place and whether you want to move forward with it. So I think always just bringing kind of more to the table is the best policy. I think so too. I think people are always asking me like, when do I share my kinks? And I'm like, immediately, like, because, <laughs> and that's my bias because so many, you know, I, I don't just, I, I give advice on Instagram sometimes. And, and then also, um, like longer form, like on, on Patreon, I'll write these like long things for people. But, um, 
I get these letters, long letters from people that are like, I've been in, I've been married for five years and this person does, they don't know anything about my intersexual life. And I, during our vanilla sex, I just lie there and I'm my mentally, I'm in another place. And that's like really common. I was that person at one point where my actual sex was the same every time, but mentally I was completely unengaged. And I think like you're inviting this sort of like bifurcated nature to your sexuality and ultimately like your own body that can't persist. Like that's the whole like embodied thing. It's like, well, what's the opposite of embodied is like dissociated and disconnected. And that's like, I don't think that humans are meant to live their lives that separate from their own desires. So it's like, so society doesn't like your desires. Are you going to live with like one foot outside your body for your whole life? Like, Mm -hmm. no, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, just like laying it out and getting it out there to people, I think is so important because it's like, if they don't like it, then okay, bye. You know? Yeah. yeah, It's that scarcity mindset. Do you ever deal with feelings of disassociation? I mean, like you have this very large platform that is anonymous basically. And you're sort of talking about these details of your relationship. I'm just curious how you navigate that. I mean, I think anyone with any public platform, I mean, I experience this too. Um, I didn't, people always ask me like, what's the hardest thing about having a podcast? And when I started it, it was coming out of a motivation, I think, partially of seeing a lot of people with public platforms and personas that were not aligned mm-hmm. with who they were in real life. Um, mm. And so I sort of I came out like, no, like, I'm going to be totally honest and transparent and vulnerable. And then, of course, I got behind the mic and I was like, actually, like, I don't really feel like I want to share every single intimate detail about my life and my relationships and to sort of yeah. navigate that like public private um, space Mm -hmm. has been very interesting to me. And I'm curious what you've been feeling about it and whether you feel like at this point you would, you know, say who you really are to all these people who you talked about your relationship to, um, and whether there's any feelings of like, sorry, I'm going to let you talk. I promise. Um, if if there's any just feelings of like, you know, I, I think I have a lot of like, sort of like Aries energy sometimes. And I'm just like, Oh, like, I just wish I could like be all of myself in the public sphere. You know, of course that's not necessarily Mm -hmm. realistic, but, um, yeah, anyway, you can go. (laughs) Yeah, no, um, it is a whole thing. So like I, I, you know, started this account, um, on Instagram, um, ask a sub with this intention that like, Oh, it's just this place where I, you know, will get to be fully honest about this one slice of my life that I can't Mm. be fully honest anywhere else. Like for me as a writer, I've, I've, you know, I studied creative writing in college. I've always written. Um, and, and for me as a writer, I always wanted to write about sex and there's this weird voice in the back of my head. That's like, what if your grandmother reads it? You can't, you know? So this was basically my, my journey of like, just being like creating this autonomous space for myself separate from like the identity that I live every day as, or the, you know, the girl that gets her papers back from her professors and like the, you know, whatever my, my private Instagram self is like, and creating something where I could just like fully inhabit like this shadow self of mine, um, freely, but as it's grown, it's very strange in a way that I feel like, you know, Lena Dune is this more almost legitimate version of me because there's like, (laughs) she's very known to all these people. Um, it's, it is very bizarre. So like, um, when I think about like showing my face, um, you know, even the decision to like start doing podcasts and use my voice, like I, 
I'm really protective of people's fantasy of who she is. <laughs> um, mm. And I'm really protective of people's like way that they've identified with um, the persona, which is just me, but without a face really. Right. But like, um, I actually got, I got a message the other day from somebody who, um, on Instagram, who we, we talk um, a lot and she's really funny, but she was like, I had a dream last night about your face that you revealed your face <laughs> and, and she's never seen my face, but it was actually like a weirdly accurate description of, of what I look like. And I was like, Oh geez. Like, um, yeah. but yeah, I don't know. There's, it's very strange. It's, it's just, it's just between like when you have a public persona like that, it's, it's between yourself and a character that you've written in a way because like you are curating parts and I don't think that anyone can ever fully know like a full person like via a public persona like I, I used to work in entertainment and like every time that you meet a celebrity they're like it's like you, you seem like smaller than you're supposed to be and like <laughs> You're, you know, you've got a cowlick on the back of your head. Like, this just doesn't seem like it's not like right because like you have this projection of like whatever it is. And I think, yeah, maybe even if I had a face, it would still be a projected version of whatever it is. And um, but yeah, I think the last thing I'll say is that for me specifically, like so many people have had a really hard time um, identifying with BDSM or feeling welcome or comfortable and I think part of like having no visible like physical form people are able more to think oh maybe maybe she's like me and and I I do have a space and that's something that's like super important for me to protect but inevitably I'd like to be able to like go like uh you know be a a person with a a body so I'll have to deal with that when it comes but uh yeah yeah, it's not not today (laughs) yeah no it's great I it's it's an interesting combination of different things going on it's fascinating it is really strange do do you find people like giving you feedback about like the work that you do and like how does that how does that feel for you do you ever get like imposter syndrome or like oh yeah 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 curious (laughs) (laughs) yeah well I definitely also I'm 32 and up until I was like 27 I had like a whole other life. I worked in marketing for natural products companies. I did food photography and had like a health blog and was in like, uh, you know, uh, pretty traditional monogamous marriage and like living a a San Diego housewife life. Um, and then, yeah. (laughs) And then, uh, and this is something I talk about openly. I basically like, I'd always sort of thought I, I studied gender and sexuality in school, I always feel like I was, I was always very interested in like non-monogamy and unconventional relationships, but mm-hmm. I was told so frequently, like pe- the reaction I would most commonly get was like, oh, sounds interesting, but not realistic. Like, yeah, oh. right. Like, good luck with that. You know, like what kind of a relationship do you want? And um, so I eventually was just like, okay, I'm choosing partnership and belonging, even if it's false belonging over like being alone for the rest of my life. Um, and then met someone basically at a conference, a guy who I feel like for the first time, sort of like not the guy or a guy that I'd ever want to be with, but sort of embodied a lot of things that I thought were impossible or I couldn't find. Um, which sort of quickly, uh, provoked me to initiate a divorce and like go through a very, very dark night of the soul where I like came to terms Mm. with all my like childhood shit and yada, yada, yada. Um, and this podcast came out of, uh, yeah, (laughs) good and bad (laughs) at the same time. Um, yeah this podcast came out of that. And so before Mm -hmm. I had had all these like, you know, accomplishments and like, here are all the jobs that I did. And like, here's why Mm -hmm. you should hire me and pay me lots of money. And then all of a sudden I'm just like a chick with childhood trauma and a podcast. (sighs) 
Um, so <laughs> that's actually so, a very powerful equation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it was good. And of course, you know, um, it, I just basically felt in that time, like, why can't I find people that are saying the things I want them to be saying? And how come everyone's like staying sort of safe in these boxes? And I have all these opinions and like the me Trump had gotten elected and the me too movement was Oof. beginning. And I was like, ah, I have so much to say. Uh, yeah. And I just felt like if I didn't energetically release that somewhere that um, I was going to explode. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely struggle with um, imposter syndrome. And, and yeah, like I said, trying to trying to be both vulnerable, but holding things, you know, I'm interested in the intersection between privacy and shame. Um, mm. And I've always like, I've always been mm -hmm. fascinated about like public private and how like our private nuclear family lives were very much sort of like socially constructed. Um, yeah. And so like how much is, how much should, I mean, that's a stupid word, but how much should yeah. I be keeping a secret and how much am I keeping a secret because I'm afraid of what the public will think. And so, yeah, it's yeah. this like constant um, going back and forth and just experimenting with like how much of myself do I want to put in all these different boxes sort of. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, um, I've, I've found like to that point of like, how do you figure out what's private and whatnot that like, I've done a couple of these podcasts now and I'll, and I'll turn off the recording. I'll be like, Oh my God, I just told a story from my real life. Oh, people are going to know that I'm a real person. But like, it is really strange because we're so much more deeply identified with our secrets than like other people right. like realize they're like, yeah, a person on a podcast is telling a story about a time they had sex. Like I don't give a shit, but like right. there is that, is it for you? Like knowing what to share or not to share? Like there's like, is there like a feeling in your body or like, what is it like? I mean, I'm literally asking for my own, awareness I'm still trying to thread that needle. It's very yeah. strange. Well, I guess like always historical things feel safer, right? Like things that have happened mm. in the past, I feel a little bit more comfortable sharing than things that are going on right now. Um, mm -hmm. But I also struggle with like how much to talk about my marriage or like my relationship with my mother. Like how consensual is yeah. that if they're not agreeing to have me talk publicly about that? So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think... I do think it is a sort of bodily intuitive thing at the end of the day, like most things are. Um, yeah. And I will sometimes record things and be like, nah, that was no nope, taking that out, you know. Um, and that's okay, right? <laughs> like I think it's okay to kind of like learn in that way and edit where you need to. Uh, it's just totally. not, it's definitely like I was, it was it's just not something I thought was going to be so present, but, but having conversations mm -hmm. Um, is and I have another podcast with a close friend of mine called Horror Poor, which is all about sex, and it's just the two of us nice. talking. Um, and so that one's even more challenging because it's like we're just two yeah. chicks. Like I don't have like you know scholarly like research to you know talk about or like well, most women. Like I don't know. I'm just talking from my own yeah. experience. So <laughs> I don't feel like which an is expert valid at all. and people need. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Um, but yeah, I think it's just like an interesting exercise, I guess. And um, at least, I mean, I've been doing this podcast now for two years, I guess. Uh, is it more than yeah, that? No, two wow. years. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. It's, it's <laughs> quite fun. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm not, I don't like have it figured out. I think that's why I like the podcast because it's like this, this thing that's growing with me, you yeah. know? It is weird so. to be building something to be consumed, you know, because like uh, 
I, I saw something about like the cycle of artistic creation and, and somewhere in there, there was like rage it was like for creating online or creating anything. There's like sort of a rage stage, which I, I've seen a lot of creators go through because like when you put your heart and soul into something to be consumed, you're like, as you're ramping up, you're like, oh my God. 15 people liked my picture and they, they found me, you know, and then the bigger it gets like right now, I'm, I'm I, I like around 55,000 Instagram followers right now. So the floodgates have been wide open to the critics for a while now. And you do get into this like role where, you know, you're like, I'm putting out my tiny, fragile baby artistic heart to be consumed. And then some people will go just go by and be like, Ugh, you know, and the, you don't have to be palatable to everybody. But there is something really like vulnerable about that's part, I think, why the public private concern is so big, because like, when you find that some passing comment that you make can get people like really angry um, or disagree with you, then you're like, well, I don't want to share something like that would really reflect on my sense of self or yeah, we yeah. live in a really weird society of, of, of persona and influence where people um, are like, they feel very entitled to have the, the, your, whatever you're creating for them to consume be exactly what they want. And they right. will give you extremely, rude feedback if it's not um, yeah i would totally. hope that your listeners are, are much kinder than that but the instagram comment section gets spicy on a daily basis for me so. yeah yeah well yeah. and i do i do think it was helpful like right at the start for me to be like this is who i am and these are the kinds of things i'm going to be talking about like you're gonna yeah. probably be triggered i talk about nuance like i do not fall in line mm -hmm. with like pc you know boxes mm -hmm. necessarily um and i think you know, what's happened is that other people like that, you know, are the ones that stick around. And I think anyone that does yeah. have an issue with it, it's like, that's okay. Like, this isn't your space. Like, yeah. this is not for everyone. But for those who like to question things and have really sort of vulnerable, scary conversations, like this is where you, mm -hmm. you can be. Um, so I think that's been helpful. I've been pleasantly surprised that I haven't gotten attacked more because I definitely <laughs> don't talk about like super easy rainbow unicorn shit, you know? <laughs> Yeah, well, the internet is a very anti-nuanced space. And I find like there's totally. so much content, especially in sexuality, that's like very like gotcha. Like people really want you to like step out of line and have the problematic take so that they and can they nail you. you on it. Yeah. And it's like, <laughs> cancel you, right? Yeah. But the cancellation, you know, I'm, I, I think I've been canceled a number of times at this point. It's really not affecting my life in any way. But um, yeah, just I mean, like being teachable and being open to be corrected. Of course, that's really important. But like not everyone has to have identical opinions about things like, um, you know, and, and that's okay. And especially among sexuality, it's okay to like allow for a spectrum of experience. And, yeah. um, you know, people really don't like that kind of nuance because people want straight answers and like a way of like following the rules and knowing that they're doing it right. But especially with like, even like BDSM, like the, it can get so dogmatic of like, well, we have to do it ABC and while I agree that there are things like that are like should be non-negotiable, like aftercare and consent and safe words, but there's like a huge spectrum within that of what is acceptable, what's allowable and, and our culture of like, yes or no, problematic or not kind of content trap is not like very supportive of that. So it's like every day I feel like I'm sort of going in with my little helmet and spear to fight <laughs> against like being put in a box because, you know, people don't thrive in a box. So you have to be able to like broaden out definitions. But the Internet very naturally has created this sort of black or white dichotomy about literally everything. So it's just uh, 
it's a really weird time to be a person talking about anything, like yeah, philosophically. Well, for sure. <laughs> well, I definitely applaud you for doing this both on this podcast, but just on the internet in general. I've sent <laughs> your page to so, so many people, and I know it's been super helpful. So you're doing Oh, that's awesome so shit in the world and I really appreciate oh. it <laughs> thank you um, like literally three times a week I'm like I can't do it anymore I'm not good at it and this is very helpful to hear <laughs> no it's it's so it's so important and such a good idea I think you know like okay if I can't talk about this from like all of me and I would risk like my job and all this other stuff to be able to just do it in an anonymous way is like oh okay mm-hmm. at least at least we can get yeah. the information somehow you know that's um, right. Yeah. So before we wrap up, uh, one, um, if you could let the listeners know where they can find you uh, on mm-hmm. the internet, <laughs> not in real life. Um, and then also... <laughs> Come um, find me. I dare yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also I ask everyone, and you can say more than one if you'd like, but I ask all of my guests to recommend one book that was super meaningful to them in their life. Um, and then I have a patron as well and we do a book club and always pick from books that the guests recommended. So, um, oh my gosh. Um, yes, you can find me online at, um, at ask a sub all one word on Twitter and Instagram. And then, um, I write long form advice at patreon.com slash ask a sub. Um, and, uh, a book that I would recommend that really, changed my perspective on like a lot of things about sexuality and I think should be required reading for all people is um, Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski, um, which is just like a very research-based approach to how um, how desire works and how um, uh, basically like, you know, the, the body and just all kinds of things that we didn't really, that science hasn't been interested in um, about uh, vulvas and people with them and how that all works and how they're their minds get wired around that so um and because it's 50 percent of the population um an interesting topic for for anybody to to dive into so yeah come as you are by emily nagoski great book awesome thank you so much again this was awesome oh my god thank you so much for having me this is such a great pod and a great mission and it's just exciting to talk to another uh nuanced millennial <laughs> yeah, totally hello everybody Thank you for sticking around and listening to that conversation. Highly, highly recommend following at Ask a Sub on Instagram or supporting Lena on Patreon. She's a fucking cool woman and I cannot wait to see what she accomplishes in this world, which I think is going to be quite a lot. And uh, she's super fucking smart and doing such important things. So definitely follow her, support her in whatever way you feel you can. I'm going to play you out today with The Animal I Am by Carsey Blanton. If you want to hear another amazing conversation with a powerful badass woman, Carsey was on the show, oh, I don't know what episode, but probably within the first 20 or so. So scroll back and uh, click on that. We talked about sacred sexuality and uh, just being a sexual woman in general. If you'd like to support the podcast, again, patreon.com slash get access to the book club. We're currently reading Cosmos and Psyche by Rick Tarnas. It's a book that we're, it's a dense book, so we're taking a long time to read it. We're going to discuss it live at the end of January via Zoom. And of course, for anyone that can't attend, I will record the conversation. Um, WhatsApp groups, the third WhatsApp group is almost full. So join while you can. Um, I will then be starting a new group, group four, which is so freaking cool. Uh, So grateful to have all of you and get to know all of you better through that space. So many of the 
patrons in the WhatsApp groups are organizing their own local meetups and meeting each other, um, which has just like brought such joy to my life um, and gratitude that uh, I can help bring you all together and we can all add value to each other's lives. Patreon.com slash Anya Kotz. Of course, again, just keep listening, sharing the show with your friends, posting about it on social media and tagging me. All of that stuff helps the podcast reach more people. Love you all. Enjoy this Carsey Blend song, and I will talk to you next week. Yeah!